I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, David Metcalf, notable for his research into the religious practices in Mexico around Santa Muerte, or Our Lady of Holy Death, joins us to discuss the upcoming class he is co-teaching on understanding the UFO phenomena through the lens of the horror genre. The class is called Your Waking Nightmare, exploring the UFO through the lens of horror and techno-realism. Alongside Dr. Diana Pasolka, David will be teaching the course online through the Morbid Anatomy website and collective. The classes will be held on March 8th, 15th, and the 22nd, if you are interested. I think this episode is particularly timely in light of how UFOs have become all the rage in the news cycle. And I hope whether you're a true believer or a skeptic, you'll find the conversation interesting. This is a long one, in which David and I discuss the UFO phenomena, alien abductees, like Whitley Strieber, who himself used to be a horror author, Clive Barker's cult classic Hellraiser, the cosmic doom present in the 1970s shocker, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, ritual magic and transcendence in the H.P. Lovecraft adaptation The Keller Out of Space, Druidism and Synchronicities in Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, and much, much more. And yes, although some of those topics may not initially at first 
seem like they are related to the UFO topic, it all ties together within the perspective that David Metcalf is offering. And it's not a perspective that is as interested in whether we're being visited by aliens from outer space, but rather the experiences of people who claim to have come in contact with things we consider anomalous. Not trying to prove those experiences or debunk them, but rather trying to understand how those experiences are processed. All that and much, much more on this edition of Parallax Views. And now on to the conversation with David Metcalf. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I think has been doing a lot of interesting work on a lot of interesting sort of uh, subjects that are sort of um, outside uh, the mainstream in some ways, or, you know, uh, but he's covered issues like Santa Mirte and other cultural phenomena. And now he's going to be teaching a class uh, with Diana Pasoka on... UFOs, but viewing UFOs through the lens of horror and techno-realism, specifically through uh, movies um, of the sort of horror variety. So welcome to the show, David Metcalf. Uh, how are you doing? Good. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to, to talking about <laughs> UFOs and horror. That's... So if you could, maybe you could give a little background. I felt my introduction there wasn't... Uh, top notch maybe you could give a little bit of background on yourself and just some of the topics you've, you've explored in the past because you're very interested and in, i guess I, I mean would it be fair to say eccentric subjects maybe yeah um I, so and i think your your introduction was fine i never know how to really introduce myself either because i am all over the place to a certain extent um uh the santa muerta uh which you mentioned i've done a long-term uh, research project with Dr. Andrew Chestnut, um, who wrote a book called Devoted to Death, um, published by Oxford University Press. And it was just really a, um, we started looking at it because Santa Muerta was an interesting opportunity um, where a sort of underground um, devotional tradition had suddenly become a popular tradition that not in specifically a devotional tradition that was underground in Mexico um, had become a global phenomena. And it was within a, you know, it had literally just happened when he, he put the book out. Um, and that was in probably about 2012, I think was the first edition. Um, and he and I started collaborating in 2013 and just started, um, taking the opportunity to explore basically what was uh, the emergence of a new religious tradition um, and devotional tradition. Um, and that came out of my interest in, uh, you know, the popular occult, um, you know, and how how that has sort of spread into culture. Mitch Horowitz would be a, a figure that some of your listeners may be aware of who's been looking at similar things with like his book, Occult America. Um, uh, Eric Davis with Technosis did some of that work. Um, so yeah, looking at that, I'd, 
Dr. Jeffrey Kripal, obviously kind of a leading light in, in looking at that, the emergence of paranormal cultures, sort of. Yeah, I, I was going to say, it sounds like you have an interest in things related to, I, I know Mitch Horowitz has looked at things like um, the New Thought Movement, and yeah. uh, it sounds like you have an interest in matters like parapsychology, maybe? Yeah, and I, for a while, um, I did what was called Scion the News. Um, which was sort of a, a news aggregate that focused on um, where parapsychology as a field was being mentioned in the news. So you can get a lot of sort of collections of of material that come out of sort of the pop paranormal. Um, and so I I kind of put a, a laser point focus on simply what was sort of emerging from the science, um, which does at certain points differ from what the the sort of popular paranormal uh you know looks at and so i wanted to give the scientists how, how so how does it diverge a little bit um one one just easy example would be ghost hunting um you know if you take someone like lloyd orbach uh he is a, a serious parapsychologist um he is very focused on the science of um investigating apparitional encounters or, um, you know, poltergeist experiences and that. Um, and he he does a nice job of interfacing with sort of the popular culture ghost hunting uh, movement. Um, but if you look at like a ghost hunter show, like a show that where they're out there, you know, doing ghost hunting and that, some of the equipment that they're using may not be very effective, you know, um, for a while, you know, measuring electromagnetic fields was um, used as a trope in a lot of the TV shows, at least. Um, and it sort of bled out into, you know, local groups. But the idea that that would be, oh, OK, if this EMF spikes, we have something. Whereas originally what those were, were used for, um, it's, you know, there was clear research that there were certain strengths of electromagnetic fields that would affect cognition and potentially cause hallucinations. And so if you had someone who was saying that they were seeing a regular apparition or having these encounters, these experiences, um, EMF fields can also cause, you know, the feeling of being touched, the feeling of someone standing behind you. Um, Persinger up in Canada did a lot of this work. Um, and that was, you know, that had been known for, for quite a while. And so the EMF meters in parapsychology, if they went into a field study, would be used to make sure that the ambient electromagnetic fields weren't actually the thing that were causing the people's experiences. Now, when you put that on TV, it became a way of saying, oh, there's something here, you know, this EMF thing is spiking. It's gotten a little bit better now, um, you know, kind of ebbs and flows in popular culture, how, how the science interfaces with that. But that's an example, you know, where there might be a differentiation between what you see in the pop culture versus what you would see if you got um, someone from a university or someone from one of the the research organizations like Institute of Noetic Science or the Rhine Research Center um, or the Monroe Institute or something. So out of curiosity, before, before we delve more into the upcoming class you're teaching with Diana, uh, I guess, how would you, is your approach to, I guess, these sort of topics like parapsychology or the paranormal or the occult, would, would you say it's in line with I think what what could be called like the Fordian sort of approach, uh, you know, because I, I think there are I, I, I look at things like Fordian times and I see an approach to these topics coming from that sort of sector that is skeptical, but also not, you know, skeptical in the same way as, say, um, you know, a debunker. So it, it, like, is that your approach or am I getting that wrong? 
Yeah, that's so I, I would say that definitely a lot. I like Charles Fort's work. Um, I really like his work. I, I think that um, I, maybe I come from an even more iconoclastic um, where where skepticism and not skepticism, I'm, I'm more in a sort of observing and absorbing mode, if that makes sense. Um, you know, my skepticism would come in in terms of you know, am I going to stand behind something and say this is real or not real, right? I would be I would be careful with that and I'd be very thoughtful with that. But in terms of my own experience, um, it's almost more of an ethnographic uh, approach to it, but really loose. Um, what do you mean by ethnographic, just out of curiosity? So ethnography is when, you know, a researcher would go into a culture and experience the culture from within. And obviously that has its its uh, limitations, right? Like you can't, you can't necessarily enter a culture and then suddenly uh, be accepted or experience it in the same way that people living within that culture, you know, or cultures where would experience it. Um, you know, I take a very sort of hands-on approach. When I started doing the Santa Muerta research, I set up an altar. Um, you know, I I went into it and actually experienced it. You know. Um, got in touch with some of the devotional leaders in Mexico, uh, a good friend of mine, Hank Vine. Um, I've, you know, we've, he discovered Santa Muerta around the time that I started uh, doing the research. And uh, we share a lot of conversations about his experience as a devotee, you know. Um, yeah, I think 40 and times would probably, I guess what, what I'm, what I'm kind of hedging on is I think 40 and times is probably more skeptical than I am. Um, you know, I personally have had experiences, um, doing the sign, in the news and getting to know a lot of the parapsychologists, you know, I, um, I'm the scholar in digital residence for the Winbridge Institute who do a lot of research with mediumship. Um, I did some programming with Shannon Taggart, uh, who's a photographer who's done a long-term study of seance phenomena. I've actually uh, been really interested in trying to get her on the show, but we'll talk yeah, about that another time. Yeah, yeah, she's fantastic. Um, and her work's amazing. Her photography's incredible. Um, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, so I don't, you know, I, I guess, yeah, the Fordians still seem a little bit more more skeptical than than I would say I am. I've I've experienced things, you know, what, what the end, what the end, uh, meaning of that is, or what the, you know, real, not real, that kind of thing. Um, I, I wouldn't even venture to guess, you know, but I've, I've, I've lived within it. And so, you know, I can't, I can't say that it's not there, you know? In, in other um, words, I guess you would say that you've had anomalous experiences. Yeah. Mean, you don't know what the explanation is. They could be something mundane. It could be something yeah. more extraordinary, but you're not willing to sort of hedge your bets on what um, the meaning of the experiences or what's yeah. driving those experiences. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's more interesting that way. It gives you more to sort of explore and, you know, if you, you keep yourself open to that, obviously with care, right? I mean, you know, there's, there's dangers to just like running, <laughs> running into to weird spaces and, and sort of losing yourself. But, um, you know, and I think too, uh, the, um, in terms of sort of finding meaning in that, that's a lot of why I look at the media, right? That sort of comes out of these, these cultures or comes out of these experiences, because it's a place where you can sort of safely explore that, right? Without, without having that, is this real? Is this not real? You know, um, without going down like the, um, you know, the Philip K. Dick sort of chapel perilous. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Experience. And, you know, and, 
you know, and to be honest, if you if you get into this stuff, you're you're bound to have some level of that, right? I mean, even if you're just into it as a sort of curious reading the books kind of thing, there's bound to be a moment where that you know things start to get a little hazy and strange. You sort of question your sense of reality, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, synchronicities alone, if a synchronicities start to pile up, it gets weird, you know, and you have to kind of think like, what does this mean? Am I starting to just like you know, tag on patterns that are meaningless, or is there something more to this, you know? Um, and that actually was one of the drivers for this course, um, was looking at Whitley Strieber's work. Um, you know, I've had the, 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 for, the good fortune of meeting Whitley, um, and spending some time with him. Um, and, you know, his experience, I think, in this is really interesting because it covers so many different layers of it and levels of it. Um, and what I found actually doing sort of a, a survey of the horror genre was that communion, whether or not you want to say it's, it's real or not real communion for the time that it was published is sort of this, this amazing pinnacle of where horror was going as a literary genre, you know, including, um, Whitley putting himself into the story right now. Uh, again, again, I'm not saying real or not real on on what the what the experience that he had was that led to communion. But prior to that, he'd written a couple books where he'd put himself in as a character. Meta narratives are used in Peter Straub's work. There's a lot of examples where you can see this sort of play between reality and fiction, you know, or reality and you know, subjective and objective. And that is is actually a kind of a key tool of horror you know, pulling the, pulling that, that reality there as a base so that when something else comes in, right, that's the, the horror element, right. The thing that's going to trigger you into, you know, some sort of reaction to it, you need that baseline reality, right? So that meta narrative is built into horror. And if you look at, if you look at communion in light of like Edgar Allan Poe, right. Communion starts out the first chapter and it's about, um, it's basically describing an unreliable narrator. Right. So here you have just for people. I I may have people that are unfamiliar with Hmm. uh, Whitley Schreiber and communion. So for people that don't know, uh, Whitley is probably the most well-known alien abductee. And he he was a big time. I would say he was on track to be like the next Stephen King. I mean, he wrote um, books like Wolfen and Hmm. um, a a number of other horror novels uh, that were pretty popular. I mean, Wolfen got made into a a really interesting horror movie back in the 80s. Uh, but and the, hunger, the hunger too with David yeah, the Bowie. hunger with David Bowie. I was going to say I thought that was written by him, but uh, yeah. you know, for people that don't know, Whitley uh, had an alien abduction experience, and you know, I've always found his story very interesting because I mean, it's obviously very real to him. But I've seen right. you know, I've seen pop culture make fun of Whitley Strieber, uh, right. specifically like South Park and whatnot, and in a way, I think that's very sad. Uh, because the experience was very real to him. For people that don't know yet, uh, essentially a lot of the the stuff about you know aliens probing abductees, a lot of that is dealt with in Schreiber's account, which is uh, recounted in his book Communion. Um, mm-hmm. So just just to give my listeners an understanding of who Whitley is. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, that's that's exactly, and yeah, and it's interesting too. The the um, the probing joke that that comes out of um, one of the experiences that he describes that actually had medical complications. 
So when he, that was one of the things where he was still struggling with is what I experienced real or not real. Um, he actually had damage from, uh, you know, the, the anal probe kind of thing that he had described in the book. He actually had physical damage. And that was one of the things that led him to take it very seriously because he was wondering, you know, what is this, what is this thing happening to me? You know? Um, and ironically, uh, you'd said that he was kind of on track with Stephen King in that. Yeah, he was he was within that circle of writers. So, you know, if you look at um, horror as a as a literary genre, um, Stephen King is one of the first people to start. You know, you've got Ira Levin with Rosemary's Baby. You've got, uh, you know, uh, Blady with The Exorcist. And those kind of trigger... Uh, a serious, serious literature. I don't know. It's serious is a bad word, but the, I guess the publishers and the public, the critics take it more seriously and sort of this, the birth of the horror novel, right. As opposed to short stories and pulp novel, you know, pulps, pulp books and that, um, the horror novel sort of comes out of, out of the late sixties and early seventies. And Stephen King was one of the forerunners of that. Um, especially in terms of the horror novels, you know, you had a lot of short stories, right. Robert Block, Right. He, he wrote the, the author of Psycho. Yeah. Psycho. Right. And that gets made into a, a Hitchcock movie. Right. And so and you have a lot of the a lot of the pulp horror short story writers, which Block was for a, for a portion of his career. Yeah, um, in, a, in a way, you can draw a line between Block and, and you know, these, you know, legendary horror authors like August Derleth and most yeah, notably yeah. H.P. Lovecraft and that whole mm -hmm. circle that sort of created the Cthulhu mythos. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Block wrote within that. He was, you know, he corresponded with Lovecraft. Um, and so you have them writing, but they also write for Hollywood. So you get a lot of, you know, Twilight Zone episodes and and Outer Limits episodes that may have uh, a writer that you, you recognize. Um, the You know, so... But once this sort of literary novel horror thing comes out, right, you got Carrie and, and Salem's Lot and that. And Stephen King sort of leads that. And those start getting being made into movies. Um, Whitley wrote Wolfen in 78, I believe it was published. Um, and that then becomes a, a movie. Uh, and then you also have The Hunger, uh, which he wrote after that. And I think it was published in 79 or 80. And that comes out as a, as a movie. So he's right there with Stephen King. And right prior to the publication of communion in 1987 um he's right there with clive barker he's being published but with clive barker and short story collections he's being published with peter straub who's a major uh horror novelist um bestseller um it's sad you know. because i think in some ways his career as a horror author is almost forgotten now people only right. think of the right. the alien abduction stuff and the other thing i find sad is um you know, I, I lean towards the skeptical side of things myself, but one thing that's always interested me about Whitley Schrieber's case is that whether or not he was really abducted by alien entities, right? I, I think the trauma is very real for him, which right. I've always found to be most fascinating about his story. Right. Well, and it's interesting too, because if you, in, it, within communion, the narrative, um, he never says extraterrestrial or alien as a definitive thing. In fact, he leans towards something else, this, this sort of other. <laughs> and so that he let, he leaves that question open and he calls them the visitors. You know, it's a sort of a simple name and he's very careful with that. And he's still, um, you know, he does have a podcast where he 
it's it's a popular podcast that that uses sort of the vernacular for this stuff but you know in conversation and, and when he's working with um jeffrey kripal he they did a book called supernatural two words um which was about sort of exploring uh so kind of a normalization of what people would call paranormal or you know and that kind of thing um and he's very careful to point out that he doesn't he doesn't know what it is he's had this experience here's his here's his uh his way of kind of working through that experience you know and that's what's interesting even it's even in the title communion the the full title of communion is communion a true story and he's very careful in that choice of the word story he uh, you know he says he's from texas and he's a storyteller right and so when he says story it's sort of like that play with myth where it's a myth isn't not, you know, myth doesn't mean it's not real. It means that it's a it's sort of different way of looking at reality, you know, a, a more symbolic way or that. And so when he's saying story, um, he's very careful in that, but it's a true story, right? So it's a story about his experience with what he calls the visitors. Um, but what's interesting to me, you know, you mentioned Lovecraft, um, you know, he, he wrote a book called forbidden zone, which was one of his horror books and it's dedicated to Lovecraft. And there's a, it's a, there's a fascinating sort of Lovecraftian element of the, of what, how he describes these visitors. There's actually a point in um, one of the, I don't remember if it's a book or an article that he was writing. It was like 25 years after communion. And he describes the reality that he's seen through this interaction with the visitors and I was going to say, in some ways, one of the things that makes Whitley, to me, more interesting uh, than some of the alien abductees uh, that I've heard about is I think he's really interested in the in how this affected him on like a psychological and even yeah. a spiritual level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he he sees it as a spiritual as a spiritual experience. You know, is that what and, the, so? Is that what the term communion is referring to when he uses that as the title? Yeah. So he originally his title for it was body horror. Right, which that was his original title for it and his wife Very said Cronenberg yeah yeah well and that's the, I mean that's the, he was within that you know he was in that sort of circle of of that culture right he was in horror culture so it was body horror and his wife said no 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 that's not what this book is about this book is about communion it's about this experience of communion with these visitors whatever they are this this other intelligence right and this interaction with it and that's what this book is about and um he credits her with with the title for that so yeah it does it is that describing that experience and that communion though um what i was going to say with the lovecraft thing he in this 25 years after communion whitley is describing how he sees the reality through the visitors and i was joking with greg bishop because if you go to shadow out uh, over innsmouth and you look at the last section where the protagonist, you know, gets, he realizes that he's born into the, the Innsmouth, uh, you know, sort of kindred. And then he has this revelation and he's describing the vast eternity that he's going to step into when he goes to the deep ones. And you can put him side to side with how Whitley describes his experience with the visitors. And it's very similar. And so that's really interesting to me, right? Because obviously Lovecraft is also coming out of Poe. You know, and so there's this this straight line from Poe to Streber that exists within the mediation of 
these experiences, you know, whether it was Lovecraft's lucid dreaming and his, you know, his, his dream recall and that kind of thing. And his, his, the ways that he was processing his, um, his sort of mental illness and, uh, you know, his, um, mental breakdown periods and that, like, if you read dreams in the witch house, like it's so clearly, he's, it's, it's so clearly about written through his anxieties, you know, his anxiety attacks and that. And, you know, obviously he had, he was just a vicious racist and, you know, xenophobic and that. Um, but, but the, within the, the writing, you know, the, all those things are getting processed and sort of churned, you know? And so what happens when these experiences, paranormal experiences, are then brought through in media like that, you know, um, and it's really interesting to me that this there's this through line, right, that that goes through. Uh, Stephen King, in the early '80s, he was on Dick Cavett with uh, George Romero, Ira Levin, um, and uh, Peter Straub, and Stephen King made the joke that if any horror author ever saw a UFO, they wouldn't be able to say they wouldn't be able to say that they saw it because it would ruin their career. You know, and so here's Whitley within that circle and he has this experience. Um, and what did it do? Like you said, it sort of tanked his career as a novelist and he becomes a professional experiencer, you know, and a, and a radio host for a while. Art Bell um, gave him a, a show. Uh, yeah. Dreamland, uh, right? Dreamland. Mm -hmm. So it, it's interesting. I want to get into the, the movie version of communion and maybe your thoughts yeah. on that, because, uh, it's a very interesting movie from, a, I believe, yeah. Felipe Mora directed yeah. it. Felipe yep. has done some oddball B movies, yeah, he's, including he's Howling 2, Your Sister is a Werewolf, one of yeah, my favorites. Yeah, yes. <laughs> but, a great soundtrack, too, on that. But, you know, one thing that interests me about the whole communion story is, now, now you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, like, it, it does play like a, a horror story, especially in the movie, yeah. But I think Whitley's views on it are a little bit more complex than just this was simply a horrific experience. I don't know that he oh, has yeah, like a negative yeah. view of the visitors or no. a positive. I, I, I think his view on it is very nuanced. Maybe you could explain yeah. that. Yeah. And that's that's one of the, the really interesting things to come out of it. Um, you know, like I said, originally his original title was Body Horror. Um because it, it just it was horrifying and you know he uh that was one of the interesting things um in the the quote that i was thinking that was very similar to the the shadow over in's mouth is that he describes the visitors as predatory so one of the which so one way to think about it um for those who are familiar with wolfen or the hunger um he in sort of retconning his previous fiction has has seen that and there are similarities to how he describes it but the figures of the vampires and the hunger um or the wolfen in in wolfen um represent aspects of the visitors and represent aspects of um you know whatever that intelligence is right so if you know in the hunger um sort of a coldness and an aloofness and an aristocracy but one that's empty and and sort of hungry you know and for the wolf in um part of the natural order but so much so and so uh powerfully so that humanity can barely even conceive of it you know um and so that that those things and it, it's interesting too because there's um 
in a more recent sort of critical theory, there's uh, Mark Fisher's book, The Weird and the Eerie, The Weird and Eerie. Um, a lot of my listeners are very familiar with that book and they're big fans of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, and what's interesting about communion is that Whitley has both the weird as the visitors and the eerie because of his own experiences with himself and his own experiences with his memory and and going back and figuring out who am I, right? Like what why did I have this experience? And then through that experience, he's gone forward in writing back to his childhood and seeing where those experiences sort of dovetail with things that he didn't think of um, at the time. And it's a really interesting sort of loop that becomes kind of this, you know, what within the the sort of realm of the eerie. Um, and then the weird being the visitors who are this complete other that is interfacing with his life and finding ways to communicate with him um, and he to communicate with it. Uh, while at the same time, uh, um, you know, being so foreign and so sort of other and, and strange, you know? Yeah, I was going to say, I, I guess what I was referring to is, um, does he have this view that these visitors that he uh, had an experience with, I, I don't think he necessarily thinks they're, I mean, you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but that they're necessarily like evil, right? Um, I, I, yeah. I, I get the impression he almost may have a, a sort of, th there was this Harvard professor, and I'm sure you know of him, but for my listeners, uh, John Mack, who mm -hmm. actually thought that, you know, these alien abductees were experiencing like a higher spiritual yeah. experience. And, and in yeah. that sense, their visitations were actually um, beneficial or positive. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, and that's, that's Whitley's, Whitley sees, he's described it as, um, I, I can't, I don't remember the exact words, but par like paraphrasing it is basically evolution um actually this would uh amanda um anna marie radcliffe uh who consulted on color out of space uh richard stanley's color out of space um excellent she, nicholas cage movie <laughs> yeah it's a fantastic movie um she was describing uh sort of the this idea as evolution out of place and i think whitley described it as evolution as seen um on a human time scale but but sped up right so like the like that massive change in evolution but then smashed into the human time scale because what the visitors experience he's some of his more recent work goes into um kind of how they exist how he you know the ways that this thing that he's experiencing as the visitors exist in time and it's a different sort of time span you know um so he doesn't see them as good or evil they're other um, and they have a certain relationship to reality and he and humanity have another relationship to reality and both are flawed in their own ways. And in sort of that communion and that merging, um, the two can find uh, a third order of reality that's more beneficial to both would, I think would be kind of where he's, where he's leaning in his, his more recent writing. Um, and he's gone through, you know, he's gone through periods where uh, the experiences have been so traumatic uh, on top of uh, career trauma, you know, just from being the alien abduction guy, um, you know, that he has, I think he's had more negative views at times. And that's what, that's what really, I think, makes his, his experience so interesting um, is that he has had a dynamic and changing view of it like anybody would. You know, I mean, sometimes. Do you, you know, think the experiences of someone like Schreiber, because I know I'm going to have get listeners 
that think, oh, this is all just, it's too woo-woo for them, or they, they think it's woo-woo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I feel like, maybe I sound crazy saying this, but even as a skeptic, I think there's something that can be gained from yeah. looking at the experiences of someone like Whitley Schreiber. Uh, like, I, I almost think that they maybe through their experiences, we can analyze other things happening in society, or maybe they, you, you know, some of the themes that Whitley covers, yeah. I yeah, think yeah. are actually interesting from a literary point of view. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's really, you know, like I said before, that's why I like the media of it, right? Like, that's why I like looking at the media and doing a little bit more of a media study, because you can get into that stuff. And that's what, what's, what's great about Whitley is that he was a novelist and he was a writer. So he's written this stuff down. He's written his journey down. And the same thing that you would get out of, you know, a, a philosopher or something like that, you know, any writer or, or someone creating media, film, music, whatever, um, the same things that you're getting out of that, you can get from what Will, what Whitley's written or any experiencers that have written stuff um, and explore those deeper questions, you know, of, of everyday kind of stuff, you know, and it doesn't. And that's why I think well, like, even in his talking about the visitors and I, I'm sorry, yeah. I keep interrupting oh, yeah. you, but no, no, please. Yeah, you please. know, I think we have issues in our society of dealing with an idea of self mm -hmm. and other, you yeah, know, and how absolutely. we otherize people. Um, right. And in a weird way, I, I think Whitley's work actually ends up, you, you can end up thinking about self and other within the context right. of his experiences. So yeah. in a way, yeah. I think he he points us towards wider issues. Yeah. 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 That's a good, that's a great point. And that's exactly, yeah. I mean, if you put the other so far out there and then you try to bridge that gap, you're going to hit all the other, you know, like all the things that are the the quote unquote other in between that, you know, and start to understand that better. Um, you know, if you put it in, and that's what now, you know, that's what novels and fiction and, and that kind of thing help us do is they sort of provide a, a, a thought experiment that we can work through. Um, Whitley happens to be living in his thought experiment in the thought experiment, you know, and sharing that with, with people, you know, just, um, just like in the past, a priest might, right. Um, you know, share in the sort of liturgical drama of the religion, um, and then give that to the people, you know, um. And that, you know, I think that what well, I think the other thing, too, that's interesting about um, and one of the reasons that horror was so perfect to kind of use was that it's infused so much of the narrative of what, you know, even experiencers of UFOs, their experiences are so mediated by things from from fiction and from uh, films and, and that. Can you um, elaborate on what you mean by that or? Uh, well, so if you read uh I might, I'm going to keep hitting on, on Lovecraft just cause it's a, it's an easy kind of thing. Dreams in the witch house. Um, the protagonist, uh, you know, moves into this house that is allegedly haunted by this witch who had, um, escaped from her cell because she had known these, these angles. She had described these angles that could be, uh, used to sort of step through dimensions. And, um, one of the the things in there the it's a student moves into this the exact room that she had lived in um and he talks about how his research is combining quantum physics and folklore and proving things from folklore through quantum physics and mathematics higher mathematics and so he goes on this this thing and he you know has these experiences but one of the when he starts to have these sort of lucid dreams where he feels like he's in these other dimensions depending on where he's at sometimes they're abstract sometimes they're more formed and in one place he breaks off a piece of a railing 
and it has this sort of uh you know alien sculpture piece and he breaks it off and he's holding it in his hand and then he goes back and you know he wakes up right and then it just so happens that that piece that he broke off in his dream is there sitting in you know his bed and so the narration goes on where this thing is found he takes the piece to the universities and Miskatonic University, which is sort of a Lovecraft, uh, you know, um, place that he uses in a lot of stories. It's part of the mythos. He goes to Miskatonic with it and they do chemical analysis of it and find that it has anomalous alloys, right? And anomalous elements, elements that aren't on the periodic table. Now, fast forward to now and look at some of the work that Gary Noland and Jacques Vallée have been reported as doing on UFO materials. And what are they looking for? They're looking for anomalous alloys. They're looking for if there's an element there that doesn't make sense. If they're, right. So what you have is Lovecraft in the 20s describing a, basically, a, you know, a, a UFO material because they don't in the current analysis at the at the research level with this stuff, they're not talking about it necessarily coming from space. They're They're saying that people are seeing something. There's a material possibly left over. And we're going to test and see where this material, what this material is, right? But Valet has talked about it could be, you know, t an example of time travel, just as a as a possibility, right? It could be something crossing dimensions, and and it comes into here. It could be uh, something like in a port, which you find in seances, where materials appear, right, at, on at the seance. So um, they don't know what it is, but all of those questions, right, are then encapsulated in this dreams in the witch house sort of you know narrative element of this anomalous material that this guy's bringing back through his dreams which has the exact same sort of thing and where does that material come from it comes from an alien world it comes from you know uh this so it's these kind of like these elements to it that that sort of cross over you know real quick because you mentioned well go on i'm sorry oh no no please yeah please yeah i was gonna say since you mentioned Jacques Vallée, i always thought it was interesting that you know, the Steven Spielberg movie, as I understand it, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, my understanding is that, you know, Valet was, uh, you know, basically used as the model for the France, mm. uh, Francis, uh, Francois Truffaut character uh, mm. that's a UFO sort of researcher in that movie. And I, I think uh, it's also interesting to me, I think Whitley Strieber actually uh, met with William S. Burroughs at one point. I could oh, be did. wrong about that, but... Yeah, he I, did. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to get into this. It seems like there's a lot, lot of people that come from not necessarily even a believer or skeptic standpoint, but that are just creatives like yeah. William S. Burroughs or mm -hmm. like Steven Spielberg that are fascinated by these experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you could comment on that, the the way that creatives are sort of pulled into uh, maybe an interest in this as a way to express uh, certain ecstatic truths as uh warner herzog would say within an art form or, or a yeah. medium yeah and so and then so that's kind of that, that that gets exactly to kind of what i was I, I rambled off into the dreams in the witch house example but yeah that's you know there's these things affect culture in ways that aren't necessarily uh obvious you know um burroughs was he was really interested in um in the idea of aliens, right? Like if you read his last journals, he talks about the greys and, um, you know, the, the sort of the invasion of the greys and that, and, uh, he was fascinated by this. 
And he actually got to spend time at Whitley's cabin in upstate New York where the experiences happened. Um, he wanted to go and see if he could have the experience uh, as well. He didn't uh, experience anything, but you know, Burroughs himself was really interesting. He was deeply into the occult on a very personal level. Um, some of his experiences with witchcraft in Morocco, um, you know, uh, and in North Africa and that he, uh, he and Brian Geisen were very active in terms of viewing reality as a magical reality and, and utilizing and experimenting with that. The cut up method, right? Burroughs is very straight up like this is a this is a magical technique that I'm using. Um, you know, uh, he was really interested in witchcraft. He was really interested in um, the chaos magic movement that came out. You know, Cities of the Red Knight is dedicated uh, to spellings of, uh, deities of chaos that are found in the Simon Necronomicon. Um, you know, so Burroughs was, was, but, but it, he saw media itself as a magical tool, you know, um, and Whitley as a novelist, um, you know, and an experiencer, Burroughs took the opportunity to go in there, you know, and I think Spielberg has an interest in it as well. Um, but, you know, uh, he it's interesting because valet had actually given him advice to make uh close encounters of the third kind more abstract yeah he's i i think what valet said to him was wouldn't it be more interesting if they weren't uh, yeah. extraterrestrials from outer space yeah. and I, I think spielberg said i have to give audiences what they want yeah exactly and so we see that kind of and that's that's another element of the mediation so when you're looking for the the how the experience interacts with the media sometimes the media has stand-ins for something else you know um where uh i think john carpenter's really good with this where he creates sort of um you know like the shape right it's the stand-in for what you know i mean it's the stand-in for the shape you know or, i mean he, or, you know, or, or, oh, I, I was just gonna say real quick or something since we're talking ufos something like they live where yeah. you know from my own i guess own political biases i've always seen they live as a metaphor for you know the the have nots and the haves when it comes to class and sort of class right. conflict yeah. but he's doing that through the lens of the uh alien invasion parable ultimately yeah. Yeah, or, or exactly. a, a tv series like um i don't know if you've ever seen v you yeah. know the series v i mean that's yeah. essentially a parable about fascism but right. it's working out these themes through the lens of alien invasion and ufo stories right right and then you can have you know and then you can flip that where you have um things that seem to be about something else actually being about experiences, you know, and about experiences that people have had. And, and two, you know, Burroughs is an interesting example because Burroughs was what I'll call a practitioner. You know, he was actively, uh, you know, living within a magical reality in his reality. Right. And um, it's interesting to see, you know, where that also butts into, you know, other people that you might not think that of, right? Like Stephen King uh, in that that Dick Cavett um, sort of panel, one of the reasons that he was uh, talking about UFOs was that Dick Cavett was like, you know, of all the paranormal experiences, I would like to to see a UFO, you know, and have that experience. And Stephen King was like, yeah, I don't really want that, you know, like I wouldn't want a UFO. But it all came out of a question that Peter Straub um, had asked, and again, a best-selling horror novelist, where he said, well, hey, we all write about this stuff, and these people come up to us with these experiences, and you know that some of this stuff is real, right? 
And so here's Peter Straub, who, you know, for all intents and purposes, is an establishment novelist, right? And he's saying, I believe in ghosts. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard stories that I believe from people that I trust. And so, yeah, this is real to me. So when I write this ghost story, not only am I using literary techniques in that, but there's also sort of a driving element to in my own real life, I believe this stuff and I experience it, you know, or, or you know, am around it. Right. And Stephen King was like, yeah. So when you think of like the psychic elements in King's work, right, that, that keep kind of cropping up, um, it's because he had he had and possibly still has a belief or interest in these areas which isn't necessarily explicit for him as an establishment novelist um toby hooper is another interesting one where his descriptions of uh texas chainsaw massacre he has this great description of the the um the rap party and how he wasn't invited to the the cast version of the rap party in the production because they were so sick of this movie and they were so sick of the experience because it was so traumatizing that they were out there celebrating and he was sitting in a chair on his own and he's sitting there and watching them do their thing and he said that everybody else had gotten hurt on the on the set whoever you know like almost nearly everyone from cast and crew had had some kind of injury because this the, the way the movie was made and he's sitting there, hadn't been hurt the whole time. And as he's thinking that the chair breaks and he falls into a bunch of boards with nails in them and gets all cut up. And he said, at that moment, I knew it worked. I knew that like, I knew that the film worked because now it was, it was his initiation into that. And he describes the movie making process in a very magical way of people getting into sort of a ritual and it's sort of playing out on its own. Um, so, you know, you don't think of Texas Chainsaw Massacre as necessarily an example of this sort of bridge between experience and media. But if you read, if you read into what, you know, you read Toby Hooper in, in interviews and that he's very much talking about it in a, in a sort of magical way. Um, and there, you know, other interesting elements too. I think a lot of people miss the astrology that's in that, you know, there are critical, you know, there are write-ups on it, you know, obviously it's been studied, but I think the average, I believe view- one of its original titles actually is an astrological reference. Uh, yeah. Mercury in retrograde or something along yeah. those lines was the original title. Yeah. 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 Well, I think it was because it's, it's very, I think Saturn was in retrograde. I think Saturn. That was, yeah. It's Saturn yeah. in retrograde. I don't know why I said Mercury. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah and so and it, that plays out through the whole thing it's a, it's a very spooky movie in that sense um you know the ways that he used sound his use of sound in that movie um if you read william s burroughs electronic revolution and his uh ideas about cut up sounds and using um you know sort of aggressive sounds at subliminal levels to provoke a response and then you look at what toby hooper and i forget the guy who did the the sound design with him um on the movie but if you look at how they describe working on that movie and doing the sound that's exactly what they were looking at um you know and diana pasalka has actually written a little bit about this because she was a consultant on the conjuring uh franchise early on and um some of the ways that they used sound and uh you know sort of media tricks to evoke responses in audience again very similar so since you're since we were talking and i i was right i think the one of the original titles was uh saturn in retrograde but they didn't use that title and i know that the character of pam actually reads out loud from an astrology yeah. magazine in texas yep. chainsaw massacre and that's what she's talking about the movements of the zodiac yep. and whatnot and i think that adds to the airiness of the film because yeah. in a way, people forget Texas Chainsaw Massacre 
in in referencing astrology, it's sort of invoking, I think, cosmic horror in a lot of ways. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. What I wanted to get to, though, uh, I, I guess since we're talking about the interaction between culture and the experience of of people who have had, I guess, encounters uh, with the paranormal. Uh, something that really interests me is the ways in which culture potentially affects uh, the experiences of people who have had paranormal encounters. So what I mean by that is with the subject of UFOs, I've always found it very interesting that in the 50s and 60s, you have, I think, a lot of space space brother cults. Like the aliens are good. They're going to save us. They're going to bring us peace. By the 80s, you get conspiracy theories about the uh, dull space in Mexico and reptilians are like eating and nibbling on children and kidnapping them. And it becomes, becomes something very removed from the sort of hopeful Space Brothers narrative and turns into this, uh, I would say, horror story almost. You know, yeah. I read about uh, things like the dull space mythos, uh, which Greg Bishop, who you mentioned earlier, wrote a whole book about that, Project Beta, very good book. Uh, but it becomes something much more horrific in the 1980s. Do you think this sort of cultural moment also affects how we understand the paranormal and maybe what experiences we hear about. Yeah. It's, it's a, I mean, it's a really, really complex sort of interaction. Um, it's interesting because, you know, as far back as the fifties, um, and honestly, I would say even at the very beginning, you have elements of that kind of fear uh, there's an interesting uh, progression in in Christian culture, uh, specifically charismatic uh, Christianity, where early on, um, you know, when there were uh, 1947 um, and then moving into you, 1947, you have Kenneth Arnold, right, which sort of sets off the contemporary mediation of this, of, of the UFO. Um, and right from that point, it became so pop, you know, people, there were UFO flaps, people were seeing them. It was in the news. It was in local news. It was in national news. 1952, you had the, uh, the UFOs over Washington, which caused a big stir, um, which is actually what like sort of got the, the air force more interested in looking at it. Cause it was becoming a problem in terms of the population just being like, Whoa, what is this? You're in the cold, you know, we're in the cold war and here's these things and we don't know what they are and what's going on. And, it can cause a little uh, bit of a panic, you know, where we're yeah, being attacked by, you know, Soviets. Yeah, or... <laughs> yeah it's a, and that was another fear within the, you know, the government circles was, are we going to be shooting at a UFO and it's the Russian or is it, you know, are we going to, a UFO is going to happen and then suddenly we're launching, we're launching a nuke thinking it's Russia, like it could cause some ashes. We need to figure out what this is. Um, but even back then, if you go back into the actual sort of literature, because it starts out. Um, in 1947, uh, there's a piece in fantastic stories called son of the sun. And within it, you have the whole ancient aliens sort of mythos already sort of established there talking about, you know, we were here to help you build the pyramids and a lot of the, there's one of the, the first examples, uh, post Arnold of like an actual circular saucer. Arnold, Kenneth Arnold didn't describe a circular saucer. He described kind of a a manta ray shaped sort of thing um but you know it, he said they were skipping like saucers and that became flying saucer and so the kind of popular idea of it became the circular thing and in uh son of the sun in fantastic stories which was published 
a few months published in November, I think. Um, Kenneth Arnold had his sighting in July. So just a few months after that, um, contains a lot of the ancient aliens ideas of the pyramids being built and, you know, older cultures being influenced by these others, which was a scientific or science fiction um, thing, uh, you know, that had gone back and sort of a fantasy trope as well. But you get sort of then formalized into the UFO thing and drawn into that. Um, and but, you know, there there was so it's in fantastic stories. So you've got it next to other stories that are horror stories and, and different stuff. There were the Darrow, right? Like the idea of Richard Shaver, that there was this this other civilization that were, you know, feeding on people and stuff. And so there it has always kind of been a horror thing. I think in the 80s and that it became more mass mediated as that, but it always was simmering. I mean, you've got Albert Bender um, in the 50s talking about the men in black. Men in black, um, yeah. Yeah, and Gray Barker and and John Keel, you know, the the Mothman stuff and all of that. So there, you know, Keel in the 60s and 70s was saying that there was a massive negative side to this stuff and that it wasn't just all love and light. And even the the contactees in that, if you actually go and read their material, um, it's a lot different, I think, than it gets sort of portrayed as, you know. But what's interesting is, is that, um, you know, in terms of, how that affects people's experiences. Um, they may be looking for the wrong thing, you know? So people may have had an experience that they describe one way and other people would describe it as another. And it just depends on what media you've been exposed to, you know? So some person may see a, an orb out in their backyard and be like, oh, my property's haunted. It's a ghost. And someone else might see it having been, you know, uh, having read material from sort of contemporary ufo culture and say oh no that's an interdimensional or that's a that's an alien presence um one example very clear-cut example of mediation in experience um my friend mark bacuzzi uh who's one of the founders of winbridge he did a study on language usage in requests for paranormal services so when you're calling a ghost hunter and you think you have something, um, what do those requests sound like? And what he found was, was that there's a clear correlation between television ghost hunting shows and paranormal shows talking about demons and, you know, uh, demonic spirits and sort of an evil end of it versus earlier ghost hunting shows and paranormal shows, which were either more neutral or more positive. You know, um, even thinking about like sort of like touched by an angel shows where it was, you know, a show that was sort of like a, a lightweight new thought Christianity talking about angels helping people in different experiences and that. But as things got darker and as the media around it got more focused on negative experiences and explanations of these experiences that they were demons or, you know, uh, shadow people and that kind of stuff, that the language of the requests actually changed to reflect that negativity over time. So what people were experiencing, which in a neutral setting may simply be something that was anomalous, um, maybe upsetting to their day in the sense that it was weird, but not necessarily negative, um, suddenly was being reflected in their lives as negative, you know? So again, using a, an example of an anomalous, anomalous sort of light or something, right? Like you walk into a room and you see like a, a glowing orby thing in the, the corner and it disappears. Um, totally neutral experience, right? You may feel some fear. You may feel something with that. There's some descriptions of, of those things, you know, that kind of experience possibly 
having a sort of fear element to it, but you could explain it as something else and work through that. But if you're front loaded with negative, you're immediately going to think, oh God, I've got a demon in my house, right? Because I know that orbs are demons and I felt this feeling. And so this is demonic. And then you're going to start to react to it like it's demonic, right? And then, um, whereas if you thought, oh, it's an angel, and I know from reading my Bible that angels cause fear and awe, and I felt fear. So, okay, it's an angel. What do I do with this? You know, and then you could would have a different experience with it, you know, and then there's also whatever that was, which has its own, you know, whatever, whatever it's going to do, right? Like if you've got bad wiring, you know, you could have a house fire later or something, you know, but if it actually is something anomalous, um, obviously it's going to have its own agency, you know? So this gets into a, a major point that I wanted to bring up because I know you're going to be talking about it in the introduction to your uh, class with Diana. And that's the question of what's so scary about UFOs, because um, I've often told people that I, I'm, I don't necessarily find UFOs to be a scary topic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I know there's a lot of talk about UFOs now uh, today with, you know, even some people saying, oh, we should treat it more as a national security threat. And maybe this gives my sort of anti-war bias, but I've often said, you know, I think that's a terrible idea, especially because they've been around for so long and it doesn't seem like, you know, the UFOs have come and invaded and killed us all. So, I I mean, I I guess what I'm getting at is I've never found it particularly scary necessarily. So why is it that people do find UFOs scary? Well, so that's just uh, real quick too. Maybe it's also because I don't necessarily have a fear of there being mysteries in life. You know, I've seen, I've probably had experiences where I can't explain uh, something I saw, but I've, I sort of sit with it and I'm like, oh, wow, that's kind of interesting. It, it doesn't bother me. So maybe there's just some people that are wired uh, to be more comfortable with unknowns and other people that aren't, yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. So it, that's, a, it, that's an interesting, uh, just a great, great question um, or questions. It's a great sort of topic which is why I guess we're teaching the course on this, but um, one, so to your anti-war bias, um, that's one of the reasons that uh, I'm very excited to use horror as the media to look at this stuff. Um, sci-fi takes on it seem to me to be a lot of times um, war propaganda or military propaganda. You know, let's get the crashed UFO and build a better weapon. Right. Like, let's get the crashed UFO and build a better whatever machine. Um, It's a very technocratic sort of view of the phenomena. And horror gives you a different thing. If it is going to do that, it's going to show you why that was a terrible idea to do that. You know, why it was a really bad idea to build that alien technology that you shoved into your head. And now, you know, you're in a Cronenberg movie and it's a nightmare, you know. So I really like that about horror. And then horror also a lot of times just takes the technology out of it, right? Like it's intelligence to intelligence. It's it's self and other and, and exploring those relationships and that. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you on the, the anti-war bias. And I think a lot of that that language of the national security threat does, you know, come out of needs for funding and wants wants for funding uh, by various people. But um yeah, the, the reason why uh, experientially uh, it could be a, a sort of frightening or horrific thing is that um, UFO experiences aren't always benign um, in terms of, so Diana and I 
uh, are coming at it. Diana did her book, American Cosmic, which was an ethnography, which in within research circles um, and the public, but really kind of the core of it is that um, there were there were people within research, um, Gary Nolan at Stanford being one of them, who had anomalous experiences and used that within their research. So they they had an idea that their experiences with the, these anomalous experiences were tied to their creativity in creating patents um, and legitimate patents, patents that were filed, patents that have been uh, built, and you know their their research and their their exploration of science was guided by what they thought was an experience with this other intelligence or these other intelligences or what, whatever it is. Um, and so on that level. Um, of people actually interacting with the phenomena. Um, Whitley had physical trauma to his body that required surgical, uh, you know, surgical <laughs> procedures to 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 fix. Um, people have had encounters with light orbs that left uh, horrible burns. If you go back before sort of the current, um, I saw in the light in the sky databases, if you go back to the material from, uh, I would say even into the 80s, but definitely the 70s and 60s and 50s of people actually collecting cases, Valet being one of those people, um, you know, there's cases of people encountering an anomalous object and getting cancers, you know, you getting say anomalous um, experiences, by the way, would this, this includes more than just UFOs, like, w- would you include stuff like, um, you know, say that like the Fatima, the, the Mary apparitions. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. absolutely. Yeah. You know, but, and so, but that's, that's one of the things is that uh, Fatima and the Marian apparitions a lot of times mirror, right. There's an experiencer, Chris Bledsoe, um, who Diana writes about in her book. And he had experiences with a, with a female apparition figure that's very close to the Marian apparition, right. Idea, but he's in North Carolina. Um, he had, uh, his Crohn's disease was healed. You know, there's examples of, um, you know, folks that had worked with NASA and had worked with the defense department who went to visit him to study him, who had, uh, relatives healed and, and different things. You know, it's all sorts of sort of strange stuff. Um, but at the same time, he also had an increase in rheumatoid arthritis. So his Crohn's disease was healed, but there was, there were other effects on his body. Um, not to mention just the the general trauma, social trauma of, you know, coming out as an experiencer in a fundamentalist Christian community. Um, but, uh, you know, there's examples of, you know, people being burned, um, radiation burns, being blinded, uh, where their eyes are burned and they, they can't see. Um, there was a... Um, I think there was a podcast recently that uh, Professor Wham was on, and I believe she was talking about a case uh, by a guy named Bailey, who had had uh, the the Fate magazine article uh, by Ann Druffel is actually entitled UFO Disease, um, because it's an example of someone who had an encounter with something, and they had, uh, you know, injuries afterwards, including burns, uh, strange nerve sensations, um, there's cases in Brazil where people have died, uh, people go missing, 
you know, you have uh, a lot of the missing 411 stuff where it butts up into the question of like Bigfoot abducting people or UFOs abducting people plays on that sort of ambiguity. But if you actually go through the case histories, um, there's a lot of trauma there. And there's a lot of, um, at times, actual physical damage to people after they encounter this stuff. Um, you know, so not, in, not to... in other words, the experiences can fit well at both with yeah. the, you know, physical trauma and I guess, psychological and social trauma as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and psychological trauma too. I mean, you think of, um, people's who's, I mean, heaven's gate is a great example, right? Um, they, they were, uh, running for a long time as I think Brad Steiger even has a book called UFO Messiahs or something like that. Um, that's about that he writes about them, but they, you know, they had a sort of benign belief, uh, for quite a long time. And then it became a suicide cult. Um, and so, you know, people can, I mean, you see this with, uh, you know, some of the fears over misinformation and disinformation now, um, in, as these things become mass mediated narrative, well, beyond mass mediated, I mean, digitally mediated narratives within the culture, of people losing track of reality and entering into these worldviews and these narratives, right? Now, what happens when that narrative is primed with an anomalous experience? I you was going to say, isn't that, didn't, didn't Valet write a whole book on this like years ago? The Messengers yeah. of Deception. Yeah, Messengers of Deception, exactly. And it how dealt can with those... this idea of misinformation, disinformation, and UFO narratives, yeah. Yeah, and being able to replicate them, you know, because that's the other thing, too. You have someone who saw something, they don't know what it is, and they have radiation burns. So was that someone testing out a new weapon, you know, was that they, was it, you know, something anomalous, you know, is there an explanation for it? Did a military contractor have an oopsie, you know, or or a purposeful test on the public, which at which point it's a, a major issue. And so these questions arise, too. And, you know, all of that, you know, is it fits within sort of the horror genre more than more than anything else. It's a place where you can sort of explore those those questions, you know, and it's interesting. Stephanie Quick had actually uh, sort of brought this up in terms of not everyone has a bad experience. And how do you carefully deal with uh, what is traumatic in that when you're looking at horror, which some people may find offensive or, you know, they may not be. Uh, interested in having their experiences described through horror. And I think that one of the things we hope to do is uh, really pay respect to horror as as an art form, you know, or an expression of, a, you know, something that can be overlaid on an art form, but really to the give horror the respect it deserves in terms of, of art and, and what directors and writers and uh, the, the special effects folks and the the makeup folks are actually trying to do with this stuff and not just consider it schlock or or keech or you know some kind of like just you know like torture porn or something like that but actually looking at like what are these as as objects of art what are they trying to do you know um at which point i think that in that it really it really opens it up more to being something that you can explore something that for the people who experience it um, you know, with the, with the UFOs or any kind of anomalous experience, uh, you know, can hopefully pay respect to that. Right. And, and respect that. Um, I'm, I'm sure that won't work <laughs> work in every case, but, uh, do you mean that horror movies can provide like a, a sense of catharsis or. Yeah. I mean, depending on how you take it, I definitely think that, uh, you know, so I, 
in college, I went through like a massive horror binge and it was like Fulci and like Argento and like, you know, like last house on the left. And it was just like, let's watch all these movies. And your brain starts to feel like, oh my goodness, like what, like, like, what am I putting into my, you know, like as, as eyes are being gouged and, you know, it's just like existential try you know and you're just like oh so i pulled back from that and uh really started not watching any horror past 1970 right so like just like really just absorbing the universal and rko stuff and and some of the hammer um and just really enjoying that uh but then for this class i was like well i can't you know and this this class has been in development for a while so for the last couple of years i've been like i can't uh, I can't do this on just universal horror, right? Like, like, like Bella Lugosi's not going to cut the, cut it. I need to like dive in and revisit some of that stuff that I had watched in the past with a new eye. And I found it really freeing because I'd had this sort of like, oh, like I, my brain can't handle this anymore. Like I can't see another like person being traumatized on screen. But when I started to look at it more uh, critically and look at it, you know, with a, an older perspective, you know, being older now, um it really was it was cathartic for me you know and then 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 through that though you get to the point where you start to then be able to like explore beyond that right like i'm really excited to rewatch um fulci's uh beyond because yeah, beyond is a great movie yeah and that like that the scenes of like that gate of hell right and just that like that feeling of like or phantasm has it right like with that that they go in there's the gate and it's into this other dimension and this other realm you know um with all of the stuff all the research i've done into the uh the ufo stuff and all that like that's really exciting for me to see on screen and sort of experience it in a different way you know um and even even you know sort of some of the death stuff uh having you know studied buddhism a little bit more and and that kind of thing like it, it's almost like a chode ritual right like it's almost like a graveyard ritual it's like a like a tantric uh you know exploring death in a certain way so i think there's a lot of a lot of different ways you can take what, it what do you mean by that how, how so um well you know like how, the, how is it a ritual almost um it's it, it takes uh you know, and I don't want to offend anyone. I, that was a very sloppy use of Buddhism and, and tantric stuff. Like I, I understand it goes deeper than that, but um, no, I get what you mean. But yeah, you know, the yeah, it, it, it has this. I mean, obviously, well, one just in making a movie, you're going to have narrative elements. It's going to have sort of a, a plot and a play. And if you if you look at uh, mantra rituals, or you look at um, even spells and that, uh, or you look at sort of ritual texts they have a certain design to them so that they act to uh, present you with certain symbol sets that then can be worked within a sort of uh, environment, right? Like an environment, an ideational environment that you work these symbol sets and that uh, produces a, a result in your, in your mind, in your consciousness. And so when you look at horror like that, and again, I, that's why I love Halloween, right? The way that Carpenter takes the shape and it becomes this ambiguous fear that just pervades this thing you know uh sheriff death has come to your little town you know what i mean just that 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 evocation of the sort of amb ambiguity of that right and then playing with that on screen as a symbol you know and playing with those interactions 
um, can be really powerful as a, as a viewer to watch that and to to work with that. You know, it sounds like in some ways you're viewing, I guess, cinema in in maybe a way similar to how uh, the experimental filmmaker Kenneth Anger would probably look at cinema in in the yeah. sense of, um, you know, Kenneth Anger for people that don't know did really important, I would say. Uh, experimental films that influence people like Scorsese, um, movies like Scorpio Rising uh, and Lucifer Rising, that I, I would say he views cinema and, and the creation of it, as well as the experience of it, as almost like a magical ritual, uh, because you're dealing with symbols and you're sort of dealing with the psyche through this artistic medium. And I, I guess, I think you could do that with horror as well. Yeah, and it, well, I mean, I think horror is really apt to do it because it is so... Well, it works a lot in symbols and metaphors. Yeah, it works in symbols and metaphors. And you have, you know, you also have the the, the special effects element of it, you know, which pulls it out. It pulls it immediately into that symbolic realm. It pulls it immediately into that more, uh, you know, that, that more of a thought experiment kind of thing, you know, which fantasy to some extent does. Um, but I think in a different way, it's not quite as human you know, or inhuman. Right. Um, and I, you know, sci-fi again, I feel a lot of times it's, it's just military industrial complex propaganda. Um, but horror is just so it's, it's so pertinent to that, you know, it's so psychological. It's so, cause I mean, even a jump scare, um, I think you were describing it on the, the, um, the art of the jump scare with, uh, Troy Howarth when he was on and just how that, you know, something you can throw that out as a crudeau, they just use jump scares, but that's, that's such an art to being able to do a good jump scare, you know, and to be able to like actually pull that off using the visuals, the sound and, and that um, there's an art to it. And that art is also an understanding of how the mind and body work. Yeah. And, and how to evoke yeah, very specific to... emotional responses or even in a way, physical responses. Right. I mean, in a way, horror is a very, I've often called it a, a physical sort of yeah. genre in the same way that comedy is, because like comedy, it's trying to elicit a very physical right. response, you know, in right. horror's case, that's revulsion in the case of comedy. That's, you know, just this gut laughter, which I've often argued is why horror and comedy often collide with each other. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you think of like the clown figure, right? Like clowns in terms of their relationship to the plague, right? Like the, the plague mask, the rictus grin of the skull, you know, and that like moving into like the clown makeup and that play, like Shakespeare's really great with this. I mean, where do the clowns show up in Hamlet, right? Like they show up in the graves, they're the grave diggers, you know what I mean? And that's a hilarious, it's amazingly, it's a beautiful scene. It's hilarious. It's poignant. It's deep, you know, it's reflective. It's morbid. Um, yeah, it's. I think they're horror and comedy, like, are so, and that's that's something you know. Again, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. People are are horrified by that movie a lot of times, and yet Toby Hooper wanted it to be a comedy to some extent. He thought like you don't see the the humor in this. This is a family sitting down to dinner, you know. Well, and like, with the sequel, he goes full on with the comedy. Yeah, he goes full <laughs> on with it. Yeah, and it's still, and people are even more appalled by that one, like because it's gory. It actually is gorier because they had. You it's know, a Grand Guignol movie made in the eighties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, and Grand Guinal, it's it's there's elements of humor in it, you know. I mean, that's the that's the the thing. I mean, it's and that's the best the best horror uh sort of plays with that. I think that one that's one probably one of the flaws to a lot of contemporary stuff, contemporary being in like the last like decade or so, is that it really misses that relationship and it goes, you know, either one way or the other way too far. Um, and it doesn't pull off like that sort of nice 
you know what you can get out of an amazing horror film you know that that sort of rounded rounded feeling so uh one of the things i wanted to get into uh was just talking about specific films i had mentioned Um, communion earlier and i just wanted to get your thoughts on i guess not just communion but also the portrayal of alien abductions mm. in movies in general uh, because a lot of those alien abduction movies are really interesting like i watch a movie like fire in the sky based on the travis walton incident and that's a fascinating movie to me because honestly it's just a police procedural right. up until the climax <laughs> right. in w- right. at which point it just turns into a full-on horror movie so maybe right. maybe you could talk about communion and some of the other portrayals of alien abductions and what you think they can tell us about uh, these experiences and also how uh, the genre treats these experiences. Yeah, that's an interesting thing because that was something as I was, well, for the the course that we're doing, uh, I have uh, a filmography, um, sort of a a viewing guide. Um, And I didn't want to just choose movies that had UFOs and aliens in it. You know, Halloween's in there, right? Because I think that the ambiguity of the shape is a great example of that i've got um uh after after dark in there right because it's a it's a sort of breakaway civilization and this idea that there's these others that are amongst us that we don't know and they can break in at any time and you know ruin your life and and you may meet them on the street you know which is very key like the the contactee literature that you talked about um ray palmer has a great uh piece in uh uh, what was this mystic magazine on Venusians among us. Right. And the idea being that there's uh, and this was in the fifties, like I think 58 or so, but the idea that there were Venusians walking the streets of the United States and that they were interacting with people in that. Um, so yeah. Communion- I was going to say another one. Uh, mm-hmm. We can get into this later, but another one is uh, I think you'll be covering it in your course is Clive Barker's Hellraiser, which yeah, Hellraiser. in a certain sense, yeah. if you think about Hellraiser, I've often argued that, Hellraiser is an interesting movie because I've never seen the Cenobites and Pinhead as the villains in the first movie. Right. To me, it's Frank and his, his yeah. lover. But yeah. what's interesting yeah. about that movie in terms of alien abduction experiences is you know, they're essentially doing yep. an alien abduction when you open the box. And yep. these are, I mean, he basically is describing, you know, they're interdimensional beings, right? right. That's what the Cenobites exactly. are. Yeah. So it that, does sort of relate to the alien abduction experience yeah. and what Whitley Schreiber has talked about. Yeah, and interesting enough is uh, I believe Hellraiser was 1987, which is the same year that uh, Communion comes out. The book, um, the book which Communion. I, the book Communion, yes, correct. Yeah. So, and then uh, the movie Communion comes out in '88, right? It's a, that's a, it's an '88, I think. I mean, it came out pretty much the year after because it the book sold so well. Um, but the uh, yeah, Communion is an interesting movie. Uh, Whitley had actually known the director in film school. Uh, Whitley had spent some time in London and he had known him and that was kind of how he got on as the director for communion and Whitley hates that movie he's, he's not happy with that movie at all why is and that I, <laughs> yeah, yeah he's uh he calls it too arty he thinks it's too arty and then he thinks that uh walking overacted um now what I think about it you know, it just got re re released as a streaming movie. Uh, I think last year or or something, and so I rewatched it, and I love that film. Honestly, I mean, I think that it's a fun film. It's because it's so weird, and it is it's it is arty, but it captures something about his experience. You know, the 
the aliens as the masks, right? Like this idea is sort of that they, they keep pulling off the masks and like, they look so fake. And I don't think that's a mistake. I don't think that's just low budget. I think that the fakeness of the, the, the reality of the alien in that movie is part of the message. Cause that's, that's key to communion is that he doesn't know what these things are, you know, and they do sort of play act and act out, you know, sort of, scenes that he would recognize as part of the communication and so the the fact that those things look like puppets you know I mean, they just look so so goofy you know and it's so like it's just so in your face and you've got walken being christopher walken you know i mean like and it's just he's so weird in that movie right i mean I he's weird in a lot so... of things but especially in communion yeah, where I, if i remember correctly at one point he's talking to the aliens and he's like quoting I think he's like quoting the Beatles. He's like, I am you yeah. and you are me and we yeah, are all together. Yeah. 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. And he's just, he's just kind of losing his mind and like, like going with it, you know, just like full, full, uh, yeah, just full tilt, full, full walking in that. Um, but I think that that, you know, if you, if you're watching it, just like what did Whitley experience? That's not, this movie is not it. Right. But if you could see it as, um, as a way to sort of express the artificiality of any way that we possibly could understand this. I mean, cause I think one of the things that's interesting about uh, a movie like fire in the sky, um, it's very much a, a horror movie. Like you said, it's a police procedural and then you go into the, the alien abduction horror element, but it's very much those, those elements that are drawn in are drawn from the horror movie tradition, right? They're horror movie, special effects, of what you would think an alien abduction is. That's not what Travis Walton experienced. What Travis Walton experienced though was completely life altering and changing for him. And it was traumatic, but it wasn't that. And so what's interesting is that, and what I think communion does in an interesting way is communion doesn't pretend to be that. That's, you know, it's obvious like that's, it's just so over the top and theatrical and, and arty, right? That, that it, it can't be that. So you're as an audience, you're immediately like, well, that's not what that can't be it. But that's part of the thing with the the ways that these things get mediated, because if you watch fire in the sky and you're like, whoa, that's what it's like to be abducted, because it is it does treat it a little bit more narratively and directly um, when it's actually the one that's less like the experience than the sort of abstract, weird, arty, or, you know, thing that you see. in It, it sounds like with communion, you're saying that it reflects the ways in which. I mean, at least for maybe experiencers of these alien abductions, the, the experience itself in some ways, I mean, it's almost like Lovecraft, right? You know, in, in almost all of Lovecraft's yeah, stories, you know, the encounter with the unknown uh, can't really truly be expressed. And usually that manifests in the narrator going insane. Right. Um, but, right. you know, I, I guess with regards to anomalous experiences, it's not something you can ever fully, the people ex describing those experiences and even people researching it, it's not something you can fully, I guess, comprehend ever in the same right. way that I don't think Lovecraft's characters could ever fully comprehend, you know, Cthulhu. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause you're touching another order of reality, you know, and, and it's not your order. It's, it's like not the order that we, it's not even the order our bodies exist on. Right. You know, I mean, the, this alien other really is alien and other, you know, it's not alien as in it came from another planet it's alien as in it's absolutely not us, right? Like, it's not even like, you know, you can, you can communicate with a dog, you can communicate with a cat, you can communicate with birds, 
but how do you communicate with this thing which is so totally other so totally different yet at the same time there is a communication possible and then for an art form how do you then communicate that in that experience into art um, and i think communion um, flawed as it is does to some extent provide that sort of um you know because it, it recognizes that inability to, to to portray the experience you know um as anything but sort of a play of masks you know um and I, so i think in that sense it's good now i can if I, would i recommend communion to most people like if people are like give me a good movie to watch i would have to put a lot of caveats on that you know because it is a very you know it's just as a viewer if you're if you just want to watch a movie communion may not be the movie that you're going to go sit down and be like yeah that was that was great afterwards you know it takes it takes a little bit of work on on the viewer's part to to get there with that movie you know what was your interest since i mentioned earlier what was your interest in hellraiser when it came to this course um it, it was exactly what you said i thought that it was a perfect example of reframing the alien um and getting people to think differently about what we're talking about when we talk about you know this this experience that people are having right the ufo does not have to be little green men from mars you know it's it is something else um and that's something else real quick you know, what i find so interesting about that movie and i i think you see this in a lot of clive barker's work and i think it it may relate to his i mean for people that don't know i i clive barker is um you know probably one of the greatest gay authors within in horror mm -hmm. and i think you see in his work this repeated theme of you know, the monsters aren't even as bad as the human beings, yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah. I think that comes out in Hellraiser. Uh, but what's interesting to me about Hellraiser, like I said, Frank and um, Jolie are really the, the biggest villains in it. Uh, and what's weird about the Cenobites is it's not like they're good or bad. Right. They almost exist right. in a completely different realm of morality. Right. Uh, their right. conception of morality is completely different than ours, right. which makes them very interesting characters. And it's probably the reason there's been so many movies uh, based on the Cenobites and why so many of the Hellraiser sequels can never really capture the yeah. brilliance of the original. Yeah, and that, that neutrality, that amorality, right, um, is really key to that. And they're only doing what they're asked to do, Frank did the you know he, they say it right like you you opened the box we came right like you did it we're here you wanted this oh you didn't know what you wanted well you went through all the trouble of opening the box and that summons us so now you got us and now you got to deal with it that's the that's the bargain you well, know even when like uh christy the main character christy cotton opens the box yeah. right yeah. you know they come and you get the sense with doug bradley as the hell priest as right. pinhead it, it's not like he's speaking to her with malice Right, the, right, these yeah. aren't like malicious creatures. They're like, well, th these are the roles, you know, yeah, we follow yeah. them and this yeah. is what you want it. Yeah. Yeah. This is, you did it and we're here and, and now we got to deal with it. And at the end of it, they make a deal with her that, you know, works out for everybody, you know? And so they're not just there, like, we're going to hunt you down no matter what, you know, they're, they have a, they have a, a sense of morality to them in that sense where they follow the rules, you know? Um, and I just, I thought that, you know, it, at a very basic level, like you'd said earlier, you know, they, they're extra dimensional and that could be one of the things, uh, that's one of the things that's hypothesized for UFOs, you know, and UFO experiences is there's some sort of, uh, different experience of dimensionality that's involved in it. And I thought that it was a, those kind of that 
that movie in particular, especially because it was it came out right as Communion was being published. And here's Whitley talking about having these experiences of these visitors coming and and bringing his body and bringing him into this room and and all the rest of it. It really resonated with some of the themes in in Hellraiser, you know. And I thought that that was. I don't think that I think I. One of the things we hope to do with this this course is to uh, remediate or sort of uh, you know dismediate uh, some of the common UFO pop culture myths and give people tools to kind of open their minds to explore these things in another way, whether you believe in it or not. Right. I mean, then that's one of the core things is don't Jeffrey Kripal says, you know, the first thing you need to do if you look at this stuff is drop your belief. Like you can't believe in any of it. Um, Whitley Strieber is fond of saying uh, that his wife said that um, hu the humanity is too young to have beliefs. You know, and so it's really just about exploring. Um, I guess exp we we can be we can all become explorers of the fur further reaches of uh, experience. You know, um, we, we can all be cenobites. But uh, yeah, I don't. You know, it's 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 an interesting sort of look on that, and because um, interestingly, Clive Barker plays within. Um, I think he's in the same short story collection that comes out as the first piece that Whitley publishes first piece of fiction that Whitley publishes after communion. Um, I think Barker's in a collection called prime evil, um, which has a lot of leading horror writers. I think Thomas Ligotti's in there, uh, who people may be aware of through true detective. Um, but Ligotti has his own really interesting sort of philosophical take on horror. Um, then he's in that collection as well. So, it was really nice. The eighties were such a great point for horror, both written and uh, and movies. You know, yeah, I was going to say it's interesting that you mentioned that the idea of um, not believing but exploring. You know, it's it's funny with Clive Barker and his stories and films. One thing I think he does is he's exploring the other, um, often in a very sympathetic way, uh, like mm -hmm. with a story like Cabal, which later becomes yeah. the movie Nightbreed. Right. You know, the other, it, it's all flipped on its head, that movie, right? right? The story is a, a reversal of the usual and that right. it's the humans uh, that are evil. And, you know, it's the other that is actually this, right. you know, uh, thing that almost we long for. We long to be like yeah. the breed. Right. Um, right. It, it's very interesting because he is, and I, I think he has a sense of otherness, especially in that time period because of his, his homosexuality and, and how that was, um, you know, deemed uh, immoral by society and looked down upon. I, I think horror was a way for him to explore his own sense of feeling like other in, in yeah. society. And and Barker, actually, his literary pedigree is, is probably a little bit deeper than than folks appreciate. I mean, he for Hellraiser, um, you know, one of the early ideas for the soundtrack was to have a band named Coil do it. Um, and John very Ballance. familiar with uh, Coyle, John yeah. Balance and Peter Christofferson. I'm a big fan of the unused themes. Yeah, yeah. So and he was uh, and they were friends with Burroughs. Right. You know, um, and so there's this connection of those those sort of the, uh, the themes and, and Barker in creating in creating the Hellbound Heart, which was the novella that became Hellraiser um, was reflecting on his his experience as a, a male prostitute in the bdsm underground i was unaware uh, of that i didn't know that yeah. and the and the different ways of um of experiencing love and what love meant 
And if you read Hellbound Heart, it's a fairy tale. Like it really reads like a fairy tale. It's real. It was really interesting. And then I started thinking of the Christopher Young uh, soundtrack and how sort of fairy tale it is and how it really, when you watch the movie, it, it's just, it, it becomes a sort of weird, dark fairy tale, which well, might especially be... when you hear the theme of the box, the yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. It is very much, it's like a dark romance because yeah. Julia is willing to do anything. Uh, right. For Frank, her lover in it, Absolutely. it's it's like a very uh, warped version yeah. of a romance. Yeah, and it you does know. have that fairy tale element. Yeah, yeah. you know, because for for Christy, who's you know, I think it's it's the fairy tale for Christy kind of thing, and it just becomes there's different ways to look at this stuff, you know, and then the, using that sort of ambiguity and then looking at the UFO thing. Um, one of the you know, so an example you brought up Nightbreed, right? And um, in that, you have the psychologist, right, who is actually uh, is evil. And one of the interesting things was played by uh, David Cronenberg, of all people. Yeah, yeah. And a fantastic. I mean, that's this fantastic uh, performance. And he uh, and, and that. He, so to, to think about that, right, the psychologist, the person that you go to these people are having weird experiences, right? Like the nightbreed idea, the idea that there's, that there is this, this other that's living in the the shadows of our world and you can interact with that. Right. And here's this psychologist who's like, Ooh, is that, I want to find that. Right. Like I want to get there. And so he starts picking people who have these experiences and manipulating that to try to get to this other place. Right. Right. And um, in the service of, I mean, his whole idea is, uh, I forget what the line is, but he has that great scene with John Agar, uh, right, where, where right. he's like, I, you know, I've I've killed a lot of breeders, uh, right. filth breeding, filth breeding, breeding filth. Uh, like his ultimate goal was the elimination right. of the other. Exactly. Yeah, it's very right. fascistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, but he's you know, in in our culture, right, the psychologist is the the healer priest who comes in to heal your mind and to help you with those to help you with an issue. And if you're having an issue, you should be able to feel like you trust the psychologist that they're going to help you. Um, Hellraiser two plays with this as well right the psychologist who wants to figure out the box so he gets his patients to try to do that and he's cherry picking people to try to get that that to happen um so that that role of the psychologist in the the horror films especially those two films and then one of the the one that i think we're going to use in the course is um nightmare on elm street three that where, was the next film i was gonna ask yeah about. yeah where you have all these experiencers who come in and they're all having these same dreams and psychologists are like, this is bullshit. You know, this isn't real. Like, no, this isn't like, we don't believe this, you know? And then it takes, it takes, uh, you know, Nancy to come in and be like, wait, no, this is real. I had this experience before. I know what this is. Now that, that role of the psychologist as the, the arbiter of what's real and what's not real, what's healthy and what's not healthy can be very problematic for people who have anomalous experiences. And it was really interesting to me to, to again, doing the sort of rewatch that I did and seeing these films in a different light and being like, oh, wow, this, this, this psychologist as the enemy or a psychologist as the sort of, you know, person who doesn't get it is exactly what a lot of people experience when they come in. And that was where John Mack stepped in, right? As a psychiatrist who said, no, I'm going to withhold my belief. I want to hear what you have to say. I know you experienced something. Okay, let's talk about it, right? And then explore that and explore what that means, which is the actual role that a psychologist or you know, or psychiatrist should have, not arbitrating, you're wrong, that's bad, that's not, that's not helpful. You know, and so 
um, seeing how that was portrayed in these movies, it was just really interesting after having so many conversations with experiencers and having having researched this stuff now for a decade plus um and and looking at these movies new and being like wow it so perfectly encapsulates the experience that people have when they come to a medical professional or a you know even a religious authority if they come to a pastor or a rabbi or whatever you know a, an iman with an experience and those people throw down orthodoxy in books and not actually have a human connection with what someone else is maybe experiencing. And I'm not saying that there's not mental illness that could play into people's experiences, right? I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying that that this the the psych, you know, the the person who should be the authority of reality, not quite understanding what reality is and then being, you know, wrong is an experience that a lot of people have, you know. Well, I was going to say it goes back to the Schreiber thing because so even though I'm I'm very skeptical of the alien abduction phenomena, I will admit that. But one thing that has always struck me about Whitley's case is I think he's very sincere mm -hmm. in believing that this is what happened to him. He had an experience which wasn't right. it's not necessarily just a delusion. It's something that, that is very uh it's felt as a very real thing to him. And th the thing I've always found interesting about that case is it makes me think about, well, even if he wasn't abducted by aliens, let's say this was just a, a, a delusion or some type of hysteria, the the trauma is very real, right? right? And, and I do think there there are people that, you know, it's kind of sad to see Whitley Schreiber get made fun of in South Park because, you know, I don't think we would make fun of, you know, a, a victim of abuse right. um, or someone being violated uh, physically in some way, but we're willing to make fun of Whitley Schreiber who, you know, regardless of whether you believe his experience was quote unquote real or not, it, it's very real to him. Does that right. make sense? Or you know, like yeah. maybe that we should respect that the right. trauma felt is very real. Yeah. And that's exactly, you know, and that's exactly where uh, John Mack uh, started out, you know, was let, let's address this. And an interesting kind of back story to John Mack, he was doing a lot of uh, nuclear activism and was working on studies of um what is what is the nuclear bomb doing to our society in terms you mean of like anti-nuclear activism or yeah yeah okay. anti-nuclear activism because of the, the the sense that it's one thing to have the fear that uh of a nuclear attack which could cause you know a nuclear winter and then some portion of the population dies and there's a strategic level to that and there's a sort of physical fear of that like oh i don't want to die in a nuclear explosion but there's also a social trauma um within sort of the mind space of society that happens with that looming over everything and what does that do to not just a personal experience but what does that do to a five-year span if we didn't worry about that, how many, you know, how much stress is caused by that and how much, you know, how much of what we see in society is caused by this weight of the Manhattan Project just weighing everything down because at every moment in time we could all be nuked, you know. And so, you know, especially when he was looking at it in the 80s, this was such a height because you also had the news just pouring this stuff in. You know, we see it now with, uh, you know, different whatever the the fear of the the week is. But, um, you know, the stuff just being hammered in. And what does that do to uh, 
to the, our ability to actually get anywhere else or do do something else as a society or grow as individuals. So he was studying that. So he had a very sensitive uh concept of of what that what what how deep trauma can go and how abstract the triggers can be he had a very different approach too i think than a lot of people that are involved in the alien abduction issue i'm not sure i think his approach is 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 almost singular within that community in that i I think he's approaching it very differently than someone like the author of the intruders uh bud hopkins and i would say even more differently than someone like um David Jacobs, who I'm oh, yeah, admittedly yeah. not the biggest fan of, but yeah. I won't get into that. Uh, yeah. But he has a very different approach than a lot of people that talk about alien abductions. For people that are unfamiliar with him, the approach is much more, I, I oh, it's almost like based in Eastern spirituality in some ways. Yeah. 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 He wanted to, he wanted to pull it in that direction more. Um, yeah. I mean, with, with Bud Hopkins um, and, and David Jacobs, there's a pre-existing narrative that gets slammed into every experience and experiences get edited to fit that. Um, and a lot of times the true weirdness of this stuff. And that's, that's the thing too, is that these aren't monolithic, uh, you know, edifices of like, this is alien abduction. Um, people have different experiences and it, you know, it, it, it ranges. Um, and it ranges in personal meaning to them. It ranges in just the, the way the experience is described. Mac was interested in the fact that some people had very similar experiences. Um, one of the things that happened after Communion was published, um, and, and Whitley and and John Mack did know each other and, and were friends. Um, but uh, one of the things after Communion, uh, people started sending Whitley and his wife letters about their own experiences and the experiences that they felt that they, that they had had. And there's themes that come out of those. They're now housed at uh, the Archives of the Impossible uh, at Rice University. There's themes that come out of those. Um, But it's not that there's a massive amount of differentiation uh, experience to experience. Um, And I think that the the themes sit a little bit higher in terms of of abstractness. than you might think, you know, and then you get someone like Jacobs, who it literally gets just like forced into a narrative. Then actually, I before I, I uh, we were talking about where where sort of the 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 fear came into ufology, um, and I had mentioned charismatic Christianity as an interesting example. So in the forties, um, and this is a good example of the narrative sort of forcing things too, and how how much a narrative focus can change things. Um, in the 40s, you had these healing revivals that had been happening. And this isn't the first Pentecostal wave, but there was a wave in the 40s of uh, a little bit more open, like Pentecostalism becomes an actual denomination, but like the charismatic movement was a lot more loose in that. And you had these healing revivals that were happening. People like Oral Roberts, who people may be uh, familiar with, came out of this. Um, and in the healing revival, uh, culture when the it was it was really reaching a peak around the time that the ufo stuff came in and so they uh actually started interacting with this idea of the ufos and the initial charismatic writings from the healing revival stuff was that the ufos were angels heralding the coming of christ and it was it was positive 
And then they started interacting with contactees and actually having contactees come and speak at revival meetings and stuff, which I mean, that would, I would have loved to have been there for that. that I'm sure that would be just absolutely incredible. But the contactees were giving their talk, which a lot of times leaned more Eastern uh, thinking. Sometimes it sounded very communist. Sometimes it was hyper patriotic, but what it wasn't was it was not fundamentalist Christianity and it wasn't, it didn't fit the biblical narrative. So even if they talked about Jesus, it was a different Jesus than what, uh, you know, a fundamentalist Christian would think. Well, that, and, that's what I was getting at when I was talking about, you know, the sort of really fair-based narratives that come out of things like yeah. the dual space mythos yeah. and whatnot. Because I think it, in the 80s and 90s, there ends up being this weird overlap between the sort of patriot militia movement and yeah. the UFO subculture, most notably through bill cooper an hour of yeah. the time and i i think there is this you know the anti-government uh sort of right wing in this country and uh the most fringe elements of that end up interacting with the ufo yeah. subculture through people like bill cooper and yeah. i you know i think people like phil schneider were i've, I've seen them referenced by you know yeah. right very right wing anti-government types so i i sometimes wonder the ways in which different cultural milieus affect other milieus well, and that's... i think that happens with the ufo movement in a lot of ways yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a um, there's a group called Skywatch TV, um, and I don't. I'm not gonna. I'll try not to get too far into the weeds at, with this, but um, it's a it's a non denominational uh, Christian thing that they they're on Jim Baker's show a lot. They're sort of in the televangelist circle, but they're a little bit uh, outside of that, a little bit more fringe. The covers of their books are wild they are they they look like um like a role-playing game cover i mean they're they're or you know like a really like sleazy like horror like print on demand thing um the titles are are oftentimes really lurid and the material though is really interesting with what they talk about here you have uh charismatic evangelical leaning christians talking about jack parsons opening gateways to demons Right. Um, you have them talking about uh, portals, opening up things to other dimensions. They talk about they reference Jacques Vallée. They quote Vallée. They quote John Keel. Um, they quote Mac. They quote David Jacobs, um, all within uh, a certain framework of their worldview. Um, and it's for a Christian audience. Um, they talk about, you know, a lot of it is the return of the Nephilim and the UFOs represent, you know, the the end times Nephilim return of the Antichrist kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, I think there's even, you know, there's whole alien abduction groups yeah, yeah, from yeah, a Christian yeah. lens, like people yeah. like Guy Malone, and I'm not disparaging them, yeah. but I've always found them interesting because, I mean, these are people that will talk about experiencers who invoked Christ and then you know, the abduction ended. And I've never known what to make of those uh, well, type I, my of experiencers. Question, my question on that, and I've, I've, I have I've kind of did like a quick search for it to see, but I'm really interested, is there any cross-cultural um, examinations of that? So when when you have someone like I'm Alone, and, and the uh, the uh, the Skywatch group is is sort of parallel to him, um, I think that, I, I don't think I would want anything to do with them on a certain level but uh in terms of what they're talking about it's very similar um and has there been a cross-cultural experience like study of this where if people are praying to jesus and the aliens go away well what about a muslim 
when a Muslim does a prayer from a Quran, which within their exorcist traditions and that, right, which are very exorcist traditions and the charismatic Christianity butt up against the alien uh, narratives. Um, and in Islam, it's the same thing. They say the same kind of stuff, right? There's Quranic verses to get an alien abduction to stop. So at that point, like if both of those are true, obviously it's not Jesus or the Quran, something else is going on. Buddhism, right? Like, is there, are there Buddhist, Taoist, right? Are there Taoist uh, prayers and Taoist spells and that that can work within popular Taoism? Santa I, I was going to say, since you mentioned the whole thing about Jack Parsons, for people that don't know, Jack Parsons was a, I, I would say, um, he's been unfairly forgotten, but a really great rocket science, very yeah. rocket scientist, very important rocket scientist who's very involved in the occult. Um, and there's some tie-ins with Aleister Crowley there. And I, I bring this up because, you know, Aleister Crowley claimed to have gotten in contact with a, an entity known as lamb. And if you right. look at lamb, it looks a lot like, you know, right. the depictions we see of gray aliens. Um, so, you, and, and of course that would, uh, Crowley's religion was known as uh, Thelema. So, I mean, there's connections that one could probably find between UFO culture and Thelema as well. Well, yeah, actually, the um, uh, Jack Parsons' um, partner, um, Cameron, uh, I forget her, I forget her full name at the moment, but she had actually written that she had seen UFOs in 1945 or 46 and that they heralded the new Aeon. Marjorie uh, Cameron. Marjorie Cameron. Who I believe yeah. at one point became a muse for. Kenneth Anger of all people. Yeah, she was in she was in uh, uh, inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. I think right. it was. But but go on. Uh, what 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 you were yeah, saying yeah. before about um, Cameron? She she said that she had seen UFOs in 1945, and she heralded uh, and that they heralded the the new Aeon, and that was she that like the Aeon of Horus or uh, yeah. Yeah, um, which was an aeon of war and an aeon of cleansing. Um, and so she she saw that as a positive thing. Um, the uh, Albert Bender, where the the concepts of the men in black come from, um, and also that Klaatu song, the uh, calling occupants of interplanetary craft. They, the, the Earth stood still, right? Um, the, well, there's a band Klaatu. Uh, okay, I got named after, Yeah, which was named after the character in the. Okay, they, go on, go on. Yeah, yeah. But there was a there's a contact song that uh, the Carpenters did. They were the they made it famous. Um, but uh, calling occupants of interplanetary craft, and that was actually from a Albert Bender. Um, basically like chant to do during world contact day to bring down the the UFOs. And Albert Bender was obsessed with horror um, in a really interesting way. He, uh, I think it was 1952, right? 52. Yeah, it was 52. He had a room in his house, like his upstairs room, which was decorated with what he called the chamber of horrors. And he has a hand painted uh, werewolf of London, right portrait this is before any of the merchandising deals like you couldn't buy uh, a mug a t-shirt uh, a poster any of that stuff like if you got a lobby card you could do that but here albert bender in 1952 has a has a painting that he did himself of uh the the character in werewolf of london which is just amazing i mean that's just that's that's some dedication you know and so he was really into that but he was also into this idea of ufos and so he uh you know and the the men in black come into that but he had been practicing astral projection stuff from some of the pop occult stuff and he did have uh interest in in sort of the the pop occult uh material 
you know. It's interesting. So I didn't know that. There, so there's Muslims that are involved in the sort of alien abduction stuff saying, if you quote these verses from the Quran, yeah. it can. Okay. I, I was yeah. unaware of that, but I found it interesting you brought, brought that up because um, there's a movie and I know it's on Tubi now. It's called Satan, S-E-Y-T-A-N. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. the Turkish version of The Exorcist. And I always yeah. reference it to people because I'm like, it's really interesting how you t- can take a movie like The Exorcist yeah. and take it to Muslim culture and it still makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Know, well, so. there, yeah. There's, uh, I mean, there's exorcisms in every, in every religious tradition. Um, one of the, the really interesting things that Andrew Chestnut has looked into and, and I've looked into um, is the use of exorcism in Santa Muerta's devotional tradition, because um, you know, here you have uh Saint Death, who's per- portrayed as a, a grim reapress, um, who's not a goddess and is not an angel, but is literally death. It's actually death itself, um, who is used in exorcisms and used in exorcisms against addiction, um, you know, really similar to ways that uh, some of the charismatic exorcism, the Protestant exorcism tradition goes. Um, and um, you know, you wouldn't think that uh, coming in from the outside, like, oh, of course we could use death to do an exorcism. You know, like people are afraid of that. You know, they go and they see a Santa Muerta shrine and it, it invokes fear because it's a, a grim reaper is standing there. You know, um, it looks like it's evil and and whatever to our culture, you know, to, to a lot of people. But um, within the devotional tradition, Santa Muerta being a loving mother will come and as death obviously has power to destroy any demon you have to worry about or any addiction or any ill thought or whatever sickness and, and the rest of it. So, you know, even within something like the Santa Muerta devotional tradition, there's, there's exorcism. Um, and that's actually something that I've studied because I, I realized that so much of the media around exorcism is Catholic. It's Catholic exorcisms, right? Like the exorcist, that's a Catholic exorcism. The, the sort of Father Malachi Martin view of yeah, Father Malachi demonic Martin. possession. Yeah, demonic possession stuff. But in reality, most people who are practicing possession are, um, well, I mean, it's in every tradition, but within the tradition, the Christian tradition, it's actually Pentecostals, Charismatics, and um you know lutheran even lutherans have an exorcism tradition episcopalians have a an exorcism tradition so um you know it's and you can go to one of the things that uh i've written quite a bit about is the what i call grocery store grimoires um because ritual magic comes out of the the exorcism tradition um the early grimoires in that were actually for the invocation and evocation of demons but that's part of exorcism you need to invoke and then evoke the demon to get it out um and so the ritual magic comes out of that tradition and if you go to grocery stores or walmart or um even truck stops and that uh a lot of times they will be selling charismatic exorcism material um that's just available you know at your at your local grocery store but people look over that stuff because it's just quirky christian books in the grocery store um you know but the mediation of exorcism is so focused on catholicism it totally misses that um the mediation aspect we've been talking about to me is so interesting because one of the reasons i've always found you know authors like jacques valet or jean kill very interesting is because i i you know I, i think someone like valet takes a very different approach 
to say the nuts and bolts UFO type people. So, right. so like, um, you know, nuts and bolts is in people like Stanton Friedman, who would argue, you know, these are UFOs from, you know, another planet, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas Valet, I think, and, and some of the people I know who follow in Valet's footsteps sort of will point out that, you know, are these UFO experiences or alien abductions, are there parallels to this and say, you know, anomalous and humanoid experiences that people have had in the past? You know, right. the one everyone always brings up is, you know, these alien abductions and UFO experiences sound a lot like when people used to talk about seeing fairies or, or fae right. people and whatnot. Uh, and it does seem like in a way, uh, anomalous experiences, they change with the times. What, what's, right. what, what is reported changes with the time. Does that make sense or? Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly, that's the mediation process, you know? Yeah. It becomes a part of a cultural narrative. Uh, there's a core experience which a lot of times shares similarities across cultures and across time. Um, and then there's the ways that those things get expressed and sort of the, the common narratives that we all live out in each culture, you know, um, a fun example of that horror movie wise is, um, the hop, the Hopkinsville goblins case, um, you know, where a, a family in Kentucky, uh, reported that, um, you know, these, goblin like alien beings were attacking the house and they end up like kind of hold up and stand off with them and like shooting at them and stuff. Um, and that they're attacking the roof and all that. Um, if you read the Hopkinsville, like the media around that and then watch critters, it's very similar. It's a really similar. You know, like, I've never made that connection before, but you're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. That was Chris Corey, my friend, Chris Corey. Uh, I have to give credit where credit is due. He pointed that out to me and I was like, Oh man, you were so right. Like critters, this is completely the Hopkinsville, uh, thing just sort of revisioned, you know, into a, a different, a different, uh, into a sci-fi horror film, you know? So before we close out, I guess the, the last thing I wanted to mention was, uh, I want to get into why you're covering a movie like Nightmare on Elm Street three dream warriors, because I think, People will say, oh, I thought this was about UFOs, this course that you're teaching. Yeah. But how do you tie Nightmare on Elm Street into that? And then uh, I, I wanted to comment on some things with that movie. But first, why are you covering that movie? And maybe some of the other movies you're covering that wouldn't immediately jump to mind when people think UFOs. Yeah, um, that that one, you know, as I had mentioned before, really looking at the relationship that the psychologists have with the experiencers. But also, you know, with the one of the things that we'll be looking at um, which is is kind of Diana's specialty in a certain sense is this idea of techno realism and um, discussions around virtual reality and uh, virtual worlds and you know I mean Mark Zuckerberg with his crazy meta idea has really popularized this for the the current time period but um, what um, you know we're going to be looking at existence to the Cronenberg film. Um, and this idea of... Uh, That's one of the few Cronenberg movies I haven't seen. I've been meaning yeah, to see it. Uh, but yeah. I always hear it's like uh, the video game version of like Videodrome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It kind of like, it, it slips out. You know, it's one of those, the slippery ones that like you don't quite, like there's other things to watch. You know, like existence gets pushed down the queue. Um, in, but it does it does cover that that idea. Videodrome's on, the, on our list too. Um, but... The idea of these virtual worlds um because there's some 
descriptions of the UFO experience where it's holographic, where the idea of did the abduction, so the abduction, there's a trauma there, and sometimes there's physical evidence of it, but did it really happen? in the the sort of the world that we you know drive our cars in and and go to work in did it happen in that or was it some weird interface with a sort of internal mental world or some other some other thing you know and what does that mean right like what does it mean that you might be hallucinating but it's really happening and that was something i thought um because of the psych because of the roles of the the psycho the psychology the mental hospital in nightmare and elm street three that covered two different things that we want i kind of was hoping we would look at and that sort of fit the themes of the thing but even the first one the impetus for that um west craven had read some stories about um you know i think refugee kids i think it was so, it was like um asian immigrant uh, yeah. or, or refugees that they, they died in their sleep while having nightmares. Yeah, they died in their sleep. Exactly. Yeah, they had had. Uh, it was a a thing where they had reported encountering essentially sort of a boogeyman in their dreams. There's some sort of force in their dreams, and then they, you know, they were very afraid of it. And obviously, medicine couldn't do anything and didn't think it was a problem and and psychology and whatever. Um, and they ended up dying. And it wasn't just one person, you know, it was, it was, a, it was within this, this cultural group. It was multiple people that had had this experience enough that the news got interested in it. It was written about it and Wes Craven read about it. And I thought that that was really interesting because that's, that's the, that's the abduction experience, you know, like these people, they're, they're having this thing. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying it is, it is just a dream or what, you know I mean? But leave the questions open, but those, those sort of narrative elements to it are, are very similar. And it, and it's the question, one of the questions that we want to look at when we're reframing these things, sort of opening them up again and, you know, scraping off the layers of mediation down to the core experiences. Um, I think that it's, it's you can look at a movie like Nightmare on Elm Street or Nightmare on Elm Street three and start to ask those questions, you know, and start when when you have that prompt to be like, hey, alien abduction, read those descriptions, look at that. Now watch Nightmare on Elm Street and think about the questions that you have up in that that come out of that. Um, and, you know, I think that opens up some new ways to look at to look at things. So with regards to Nightmare on Elm Street three, and this will also tie back into some of the previous movies we talked about, like Nightbreed and Hellraiser. What I find really interesting about Nightmare on Elm Street 3 is there is this element because of, you know, the dream demon Freddy Krueger coming after these kids of a, a revulsion towards the experience of the extraordinary or the anomalous yeah. or the beyond the ordinary. But what's interesting about that movie, and I think this is also true in Hellraiser, is there's also a yearning um, yeah. or a longing for the extraordinary. I mean, in, in Hellraiser, I think that, you know, to open the box, you have to have intention. Um, so, you know, th there is this yearning for the extraordinary in, in the Hellraiser story and its sequel, um, Hellraiser 2, The Hellbound Heart. And I think we see that a lot in Nightmare on Elm Street too, because you have these kids who are all plagued with different issues, right? Like there's the one kid that is wheelchair bound, but in his dreams, he he's, you know, like a powerful wizard and can walk. Right. Um, there's the girl that's... Uh, I think played by Jennifer Rubin, who I really enjoyed in the role as the, she has like drug addiction issues, right. but you know, in her dreams, yeah. she's like a total beautiful badass. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think there is this yearning you see in that story for the extraordinary to get beyond 
the ordinary experience of everyday life that we have in our, our waking life. So it's interesting to me because we've been talking about extraordinary experiences in horror, but it seems like there's a flip side to that too, where you know we're alternately revolted by things right. that are out of our comprehension, but we also long for things right. that are beyond our comprehension. Could you speak yeah. to that? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I mean, that's that's kind of the, the question that these things open up and that that's kind of what the UFO could be. <laughs> it could be that could be that guide um, as a, as a topic, if it wasn't so heavily mediated by different things, whether it's the military or making fun of it or tabloids. I mean, honestly, I like the tabloid stuff uh, more than a lot of it, just because at least it is, there's an art form to writing tabloids, you know, there's some sort of like, there's creativity in the language, it's lurid, it's strange. They sort of get the the abstraction of it. But yeah, I mean, that that longing for something else, in terms of the way that Whitley works with the, the, the visitor concept, um, that longing represents uh, a future that we could have. You know, it's not it's not so much a fantasy of, I want to be a wizard, or I want to be something else, but that that's how that's mediated. That's how that's that's symbolically represented. But there's a question there of, of where we're we going as a species. What is this all doing? You know, I mean, what are we all? We're just sort of floating around here on this rock. Like, where is this moving towards? Um, and that that question of potentials and that question of potentials being realized through these different alternate, uh, you know, uh, states of altered consciousness and that. Um, I, you know, it's, it's interesting to see that reflected, as you said, you know, in the, in Nightmare on Elm Street three, you know, and, and really quickly too, Freddie's glove and the UFO artifact, uh, kind of, kind of spoke to me as well. The idea that like, here's this glove that exists in the house and, you know, especially that, that happens more in two, but like the, 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 uh, the glove sort of being this 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 object that attracts the you know the phenomena i was gonna say real quick have you ever seen it came out a few years ago it was with natalie portman uh the movie annihilation yeah with yeah, yeah. With, uh, i think it was based on jeff vandermeer yeah yep, yep. I, I, I it's very different from the book but I, I find that movie very interesting in regards to what we're talking about because i think there's two ways to interpret that movie and spoilers for people, because I have to get into this in order to make my point. But that movie, you know, on one hand, you can view what the aliens, um, which I guess are personified through this thing called the shimmer. And it's mm -hmm. sort of this zone that is changing everything on, on, on the place it's inhabiting. But what's interesting is you can interpret these visitors as destroying everything, right? But at one point in the film, I think it's Portman's character that says, I don't think it's destroying anything. I think it's trying to create something new. Yeah. And with the ending yeah. of that movie, depending on your outlook, you can view what happens to the main character as horrifying, or you could view it as, okay, this is like becoming one with you know, the other and creating right. something new out of it. And it's more positive. Depending on your perspective, you can look at the ending of that film in very different ways. And I think that almost gets at the heart of how the anomalous experience can be seen as negative or positive, depending on perspective. And that's, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Cause that was actually, I was going to bring that up in terms of color out of space. Um, that last how scene. So? I'm very interested in that because I, 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 it's been a while since I've seen it, 
but it's mm -hmm. a very interesting movie because um i think in a lot of ways the the female character mm -hmm. gets what she wanted i mean right. she wanted yeah, she yeah. wanted something beyond yeah. the ordinary and she gets it and in some ways i guess you could argue it's monkey's paw right but i, I do think you know, in a way she comes out a different person because of it. And maybe it's, that won't necessarily be all negative at the end. I don't know. Well, and that's, that's the, um, so Amanda, who uh, was a consultant on the film and who helped write the scenes with Lavinia, the ritual scenes and some of that material, um, that transition uh that happens that you know her experience was written in a positive way so she did the you know the character in terms of of the intention of the the filmmaker and the the the, the writers in that is that within that moment is is a moment of transcendence and union that happens that's positive that's really interesting because i've i i actually I forget, I was on another podcast and I'm blanking on the name of it, but I said that ultimately her, and I'm blanking out on how the movie exactly ended, but I, for some reason I had the impression that in the end she has survived this sort of ordeal and ultimately it's, it's she's going to be better off for it in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she gets absorbed. I mean, she she yeah. enters into the other. But it's, it's what she wanted. And, and yeah, I mean, she looks yeah. at it, she says it's so beautiful at one point. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. And in a way- yeah yeah and the way that it's the way that it's portrayed like because you can have you can have that line read like it's so beautiful and then it's horrifying because like the person's face is ripped off and they're a zombie and then you know it's an awful like moment um or but the way that it's framed in color out of space when she says it's so beautiful it really is beautiful and um that is the the sort of challenge of of this question of of you know the the alien other which and then by alien i don't mean again i don't mean outer space but this this ultimate other the challenge being that it is beautiful if it exists and yet it may be absolutely horrifying for the individual human to interact with that you know space is beautiful but a human's not going to survive in it right like the sun is beautiful but if you fell into the sun that's not going to be a good thing you know right. uh, well, it's, it's also expressing that idea of um, in in order to get to a, in order for transcendence to happen, right? Or a transformative experience to happen, you're ultimately letting go of something else within yeah. yourself yeah. that yeah, has exactly. to recede in, into the past of who you were. Yeah. And there is a horror in that, uh, yeah, but there's exactly. also a transcendental element. And, you yeah. know, I can't believe I forgot the ending. She is absorbed into it all by the end. So it's a very interesting movie. Yeah, well, I mean, the movie's so intense. Like, it's it's easy to it's easy to to lose the, the exactly what happened because it's. I mean, it's an assault. It's depending on especially how you've watched it. Like, it definitely has. It's it's a it's an intense movie. But that that experience, you know, and I think that that you'd asked you'd asked earlier the the question of what move like what is an alien abduction in a movie? Like, what would that look like if it was done right? And I think Color Out of Space is an example of that's that's it done right. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting movie, too, because it could have taken the approach that previous adaptations of the Color Out of Space have taken. Yeah. But instead, it gets into, I mean, essentially, I think she's a Wiccan in the movie, the main girl, right? Or a, a pagan practitioner. Yeah. So there is sort of this, like, occult element to it, which I've come to expect from Richard Stanley. Uh, so... 
you know, it, it takes a very different approach than a lot of the alien abduction movies I've seen in the past. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's a, like with the, the bender doing the astral projection stuff and then the men in black and that there's always been a strong, uh, connection between popular and actually esoteric occultism um and the ufo topic i mean jacques valet's interest in in some of the rosicrucian material and and that is a good example of that um his idea you know i don't people may not know anything about rosicrucianism or they may assume it's like the amrc rosicrucianism but um valet being french was actually reading uh, a little bit higher level stuff um from from the the occult revival in the 19th century and some of the earlier stuff valet talks about his uh career as being a continuation of the work of paracelsus um and some of those thinkers um who were um you know philosophical naturalists um that that went a little bit farther in terms of what they were looking at than what's come down to us as science um yet they were the a, a lot of times the kind of foundations of contemporary science um so yeah it's it's really interesting the way those things sort of interact and have interacted in culture and and that's why color out of space um kind of a scent like in terms of movies i think color out of space is sort of a center centerpiece for the course in um in what it explores how it explores it how it treats the absolute horror of it and also how it treats you know like you described that transcendence which requires us to leave something of ourselves behind in order to move forward into something different and in this case utterly alien and other you know yeah it's it's very interesting because i did not know that the writer of it um viewed elements of of the experience of the main character in that as positive uh, because that's what I said immediately after seeing the film. And I think yeah. when I told people that, they were just like, what? How is this positive? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's a very interesting story, though, because she is sort of calling forth these yeah. powers and they do come to her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She has that like, well, and it's funny, too, because I had posted. Um, you know, I think if I recall correctly, her big problem in the movie is that, I mean, they're in the middle of nowhere and they're just bored out yeah. of their minds. Yeah. 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 They've 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 moved, you know, they're they're suburban urban people that have moved out on a whim dream uh you know to have an alpaca farm in the middle of this ancient woodland you know um and happen to end up on the wrong side of a meteorite you know um and the intelligence that exists within it um well it's interesting i posted uh on facebook i had been posting stuff in the lead up to this course and um had Amanda had been commenting on some of the stuff and started we uh Peter Lavenda came in and mentioned that the Necronomicon was in uh in the movie and so I had posted uh sort of reflection on my relationship with the Avon Necronomicon um from when I was a kid and that and Richard Stanley um commented on it and he was like yeah the Necronomicon was in the film because it was the only one that we could get like based on the rights <laughs> and like it was basically like the thing that she would most likely have you know because it's so widely available but the book is kind of crap you know um and so that's another interesting kind of perspective on it is the use of the rituals in the necronomicon um becoming real but becoming real not because of the ritual or the book but becoming real because the presence was actually there to respond to her will you know, and I, that's a really interesting comment on magic where 
you know, here's this Avon Necronomicon, which is just like a, you know, um, it is what it is, you know, uh, and then, um, but the, the, the desire to have that relationship and to, to enter into that, um, is answered because the presence is actually there to answer it, you know, despite the book itself being innocuous to some extent. So you know, out of but, curiosity, is there any, are, are there any movies we missed that you'll be talking about? Just briefly here, if there's any other ones that you think um, would interest my audience. I will, uh, let me try to see what we got that are the, uh, the not obvious ones. Um, I'm interested in, in They Live, because usually yeah. I only hear people talk about that in the terms of, unfortunately, like David Icke style conspiracy theories. Yeah, no. Well, so that's, again, the techno realism idea of reality not being quite what it seems, you know, and we're going to be we enter into that in the digital, you know, I mean, we enter into these questions of like, of what exactly we're seeing. Plus, I mean, the, yeah, the, the Hoffman glasses are like a perfect. Yeah, uh, yeah I, they're a perfect metaphor for like, um, you know, seeing a truth that isn't seen, but almost like the Robert Anton Wilson's idea of the the fnords you see the fnords. yeah exactly. yeah yeah you see the fnords and like the you're um, seeing the re reality that no one else is seeing it yeah you see the reality and and experiencers feel that a lot of times you know scientists feel that when they're debunking experiencers you know so it's this interesting sort of way to to look at that concept and also um it's such a great like you said earlier it's the the you know it's a great exploration of control and control of messaging and control of media and you know we're with the ufo i mean again it's not if you talk to people who have these experiences there is a level of mediation there and how they describe it but when you get to the human experience of encountering this anomalous thing um it's not this goofy thing that we all think of when we think of ufos you know i mean the ufo that we know is not the ufo that people actually experience you know and if they describe it as the familiar ufo experience oftentimes it's because they're trying to relate this experience that they've had that has no language to it or is just so out there that they have to find a language for it and they find it through pop culture kind of tropes you know um are you covering invaders from mars the the uh the the toby hooper remake i saw that the poster yeah or yes because okay. i'm by i love hooper <laughs> so like that's just no, like hooper is hooper and, it's weird i've seen so many people call toby hooper a one-hit wonder and they'll say oh, no, Texas Chainsaw. No. that is absolute bs in my opinion yeah, no, like whether it's his movies afterwards like um i even love eaten alive which i think is an insane like grindhouse film yeah. it feels like i'm watching the wizard of oz with all the weird like red hues and red fog yeah, everywhere yeah. or movies like life force which is just it's yeah. Colin Wilson meets apocalyptic insanity meets exploitation. <laughs> you know, yeah. even even his lesser efforts like spontaneous combustion. In every movie he's done, there is this sort of frantic, paranoid energy yeah. throughout it. I don't know how to describe it, but there there is something very singular about Toby Hooper's movies and the sort of frantic. You know, I, I think he's very good at portraying what it's like to be losing your mind in a yeah, lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, exactly. and Invaders yeah. from Mars is really interesting. I, I just wanted your input on that. Yeah, well, it, but, so one of the, the key things for it was the time that it came out, right? Like it comes out right around the communion time. And it's really interesting if you watch it in terms of uh, the way Whitley describes his experiences. And, you know, you have this kid and he 
looks out his window and and sees this thing happening and there's just there's a lot of interesting sort of parallels it's interesting because the story loops back in the end right if i recall yeah 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 exactly yeah it becomes a, a weird loop of of that and also again with the mediation the the vast difference between you know that movie and then the movie that uh it was based on like there's such a there's such a difference to the 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 way it's it's all put out that i think that that again points to things that happen to just people's experiences the way they get mediated and changed and all of that and you know that movie was a a, the the hooper movie was a a sort of pet project by a rich guy who like wanted this movie to be remade and was like hey you know i'll pay you to make it you know so um that's really interesting to me because that happens a lot in the ufo field where like um or any of the anomalies honestly any any you mean like with robert bigelow or well any i mean it's before bigelow like it basically like if you're a fringe scientist or a scientist that's looking into areas that most people don't want to consider scientific or give grants to where do you get the money for the lab equipment where do you get the money for the experiments like it's a lot of times people who have money and have a belief or have an experience and they want answers. And so they pour money into the subject and then, uh, you know, your results may vary on, on what you get, you know, because if you're, if your paycheck relies on you, uh, giving the funder what they want, that's going to affect your research, you know, and that's the same thing in filmmaking. Um, you know, they either hand you the money and you make the film or they come in and do an edit after you hand, you know, I mean, there's, that's, that's filmmaking, right. But uh, that's science as well. Where does the funding come from? Where does it, you know, where is it? I mean, even, even the humanities, right? Like a book is going to be published. Well, it takes time to write the book. So who's paying for that time? You know, are you, are you pocketing, you know, is that coming out of your pocket or do you have a, someone who's given you a grant to write a book? And if you've gotten a grant to write a book is that grant strings attached or is it not you know i mean so there's all these questions that come up so i think you know and that's that's again why uh not just horror but filmmaking and that like is really interesting way to think about these these areas because a lot of the same things come up it's a project that you need to complete with these different people interacting with it and that speaks to the way research works too you know um i I just wanted to say i said i wasn't scared of ufos earlier but the Invaders from Mars remake. When I was a kid and I saw that on TV, that scared the living <laughs> shit out of me. Yeah, Especially the ending. We're spoiler alert. I, th- I think the kid re- like he, he wakes up from a dream and it happens again. And I yeah. yeah 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 he wakes up he wakes up and it seems all right and then the the UFO lands again and it's like yeah what exactly does that mean and that that too like um, isn't there a point in it where his his parents are replaced or whatever? Or... Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah it's, it's, that, that, all of those elements just scared the it. shit out of me as a kid. <laughs> yeah, it, it's very much an invasion of the body snatchers kind of kind of vibe to it, um, but with with aliens and and UFOs and stuff, and 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 also uh, the the uh, the Dolce base kind of stuff because the the UFO is uh, you know it it lands and it crashes and then they create this underground tunnel system. Right. So it also has the the hollow earth kind of element to it too. There's a lot of different sort of thing threads that can be a little pulled. bit of a Richard Shaver element. Yeah, it's got a little shaver to it, you know. Um, we're gonna we've got uh, Salem's Lot in there um, because one of, an interesting just 
you know, and there's different little seeds that that are reasons why, and then uh, we'll expand off of those and explore them. But Salem's Lot is really interesting because you look at it, it's marketed like a vampire movie, right? Like it's a vampire, it's about vampires. Um, but the initial, one of the initial keys to it, Stephen King uh, says that the movie is more um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers than it is um, Dracula which is really interesting. If you think about it, it actually is right. Like Dracula doesn't like repopulate in this massive sort of viral spread of, of, you know, people just becoming vampire, vampire, vampire. It's Dracula and he has his brides and then he has his Renfield and that's sort of a self-contained unit that he moves through. And a lot of the fiction that comes out of Dracula for vampires is that sort of close knit group of people that you choose this person and then they're a vampire. But in Salem's Lot, it's just like this just exponential spread of vampirism in the town, which then they go to Mexico and come back like, oh, crap, is this going outside the town? And they're reading the news, right? Like to find like, is it happening elsewhere? You know, I think in the in the um, the miniseries, the the Hooper miniseries, I think the the it's more that they're being hunted by the vampires, or that it becomes sort of a um, I am legend, like Last Man on Earth kind of thing, where they're like the vampires are closing in on their place in Mexico. But in the novel, it's they there's actually points where they they're reading news, like is this happening in other places, you know, which is you know, it, again like the kind of stuff with ufos like people do that you know an experience will be like oh well were there any did anybody else see a ufo this night you know there's that kind of thing but the invasion of the body snatchers the the way that something that we assume is the basis for this media is actually something else you know in a different way to look at at that kind of vampire idea and also i thought it was really interesting you know with the mr barlow right is this for the most of the thing is this sort of unknown you know, any of the antiques, the antique guy there talking, uh, the the main sort of face of Mr. Barlow, who is is being like, you know, like, oh, you'll be gr- you'll be really glad when you meet Mr. Barlow. This will be great. And you'd mentioned the contactee movement. And it's so similar to when I when I was watching it, I was like, oh, this is just like the contactees. Like, we don't know what they're who the Space Brothers are. Right. Like and again, no, no belief on whether or not they exist. But when you have someone presenting you with a message and saying, I represent the Interplanetary Council. Right. You're going to be so glad when they come down and in Salem's lot that you're going to be so glad when Mr. Barlow shows up. Like, it turns out like, no, actually, we're not glad at all. Like, he's a, a hideous vampire that's going to, you know, eat the whole town. Um, so I thought that that was an interesting kind of, uh, element to look at in that. Um, we have, uh, let's see, I'm kind of skimming down the, the list here. Um, uh, yeah, you'd, you'd mentioned life force. We definitely have life force in there. Um, I've got Halloween three. Uh, oh, season of the witch is great. Yeah, um, the, the underrated uh, cult classic uh, season of the witch. It's incredible. Yeah, I'm so glad. It also, is. very yeah. much influenced by Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I think they even yeah. go to the same town that Invasion took yeah. place in. Yeah, and that's um, you know, and uh, it's so nice to see that it's getting like sort of a, a critical uh, relook, uh, you know, in the last some years. But I love you know. The movie has its flaws but like just overall it's great and that idea of the right time and the right place and these rituals that are going to happen and then you know i mean there's this whole like weird 
which sort of drifts through the Halloween stuff too, and then gets encapsulated in the the Druid uh, storyline and whatever. But um, the just this idea of the right time, right place, and and what witchcraft really meant, right? Like, what do you mean, right time, right place? Like how the how the characters sort of just follow. I mean, Tom Atkins is just some guy that drinks beer and cheats oh, on his no. wife, but he's thrust into this conspiracy <laughs> almost. It's a conspiracy led by you know the head of Silver Shamrock, right? And like he's this like this guy who wants to reenact the real witchcraft and bring that back. And the stars have aligned to that Halloween being. Okay, the, I see what you mean. Yeah, they can, they can do that and evoke that and bring that out. And there's a lot of apocalyptic narratives that float through the ufo culture of you know right time right place like the ufos are going to come back and and do whatever and again it's it's this questioning of that's a really vague statement and if we're dealing with something we don't know what it is like what is going to be the end thing because to you know the silver shamrock company which is automatas and this guy that's great it's right time right place we're going to let the blood flow and you know like we're going to be renewed but to you know the the regular characters who represent for Tom Atkins, it's wrong Atkins, time, wrong yeah, place, wrong time. Like this is not right, you know. But everyone's sort, everyone in that movie. Now that I think of it, they are sort of thrust into all of this by accident. Whether mm-hmm. you're talking about the Stacey Nelkin character or yeah. um, Tom Atkins, it, it is sort of all the pieces just sort of fall into place for all the characters involved. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you've got Cochran there as like sort of this ringleader that's like, you know, wants this ceremony to take place the way it did in ancient times and like bring the gods back kind of thing. So, you know, I think that's really because, again, that that sort of narrative goes through and it definitely goes through the Christian uh, reflection of UFO culture through like the Skywatch stuff when they're talking about the return of the Nephilim and and the rest of this stuff. It's very, um, you know, very similar. Any chance you'll be covering probably one of the most insane John Carpenter movies. And also one that I assume is very interesting to people that are into ancient aliens and time travel theories, Prince of Darkness. Yeah. Oh yeah. Prince of Darkness is totally on there that you can't. That's a very weird movie when you think, and I'm I'm like, was he borrowing from like fate magazines at the time? Yeah. And it's uh, my friend, Chris Corey has a joke about that movie um, that uh, it's, it was what was it? Is PhD students paying to be killed? <laughs> you know, they're 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 paying money to to their tuition to get dragged into this like horrible situation where they're going to be destroyed by an alien force. You know, um, but again, that like the 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 way the media is treated in that and the broadcast, you know, and this the way that uh, the the church is built. To, I you know, I so not to digress too far, but I almost you, put you in, cut out for a second there. You were saying with with Prince of Darkness, you were describing the plot a little bit. Oh yeah, so the 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 idea of um, you know the broadcasts and that that happen and the the fact that the secret exists. yeah they're seeing visions from the future right yeah that are being yeah. broadcast okay yeah but they're like horrifying visions you know and like then there's um, and they're breaking broadcasts too which actually in the the history of ufology there have been examples of what people thought were breaking broadcasts going back to like Tesla and stuff like that when he was experimenting with uh, radio. Um, where they would get these broadcasts that at times where they thought they were from Mars and stuff. And so there's that narrative like fits into the movie, but um, the uh, yeah, just the way that it, it, it deals with that. And also the, the element of dealing with researchers, dealing with anomalous stuff. Again, you get that, like that, that look at, at um, what that, what that means. Plus, I mean, to be honest, like I had a, I had to be careful because it was like, is this just going to be like 
Carpenter and Hooper and like all the main, you know what I mean? Like I had to sort of reach out. And the other thing I realized too, which if anyone has recommendations or even if you have recommendations or whatever, um, this is so U S focused. Uh, and you know, I do have some Italian stuff. Um, I put in Shin Godzilla, um, because it was the most sort of like covered everything covered most of what was in the original Godzilla and then, um, brought it into a different sort of, uh, a different relationship with those ideas. Um, but different, you know, movies from other cultures would be awesome. Um, African movies, uh, Asian cinema, you know, from, I mean, each, so there's so many different, like isolated cultural cultures of cinema that exist. Um, and it was, it was really difficult, you know, like I found myself just like rolling through like American stuff you know, and some European stuff, but what are some of the Italian ones you're, you're looking at? Because, uh, it's really, real quick, it's really interesting to me how, you know, we're talking, we were talking earlier about how some artists are just influenced by folklore and the supernatural and whatnot, like with, with Spielberg being interested in valet and and Burroughs being interested in Schreiber. I know that Argento, you know, I've often argued that Argento deserves a lot of credit, but so does his, uh, female muse, his his lover, um, Daria Nicolodi, because mm-hmm. the, the movie Suspiria is largely based on the stories her grandmother told her about this ballet school that was run by witches. Uh, right. You know, so that's another. It, it connects to that. There is this space where art and the idea of the paranormal connect, and I think creatives are very much influenced by stories of the supernatural. Yeah, yeah, yeah that um, we do have. Uh, Fulci's uh beyond on there right um the I thought about Suspiria I thought about putting it in there but I didn't know necessarily how to tie it because it's so witchcraft oriented um I didn't know how to tie it into the um the UFO thing if I could if I could do that justice I'm having it'll be hard to do it with (laughs) some some of these anyway I was was gonna say with Argento uh the, yeah. the um his movie with Jennifer Conley phenomena probably ties phenomena, in well with parapsychology. Yeah. yeah, so so the phenomena and that was that was another one with uh trusting, you know, uh psychologists versus, you know, not. And I thought that yeah, the phenomena did come up. Um that may end up in the list. Um I was tempted to put the church in there, um, which is Argento produced. Yeah, it was produced but I, I think the director of it was uh Michelle Suevi, who did the Cemetery yeah. Man with Rupert Everett. Yeah. And it's oddly enough, it's it was initially conceived as a sequel to um, Demons and Demons Two. And, yeah, Demons and Demons Two. Yeah, because that which one, are also interesting movies when it comes to the idea of mediation in the paranormal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exa- yeah, exactly. And I mean, there's so much, you know. And it's I was like, at, at one point, I was like, man, is this just going to be a list of every horror movie that was good? You know, it's like, is this like all the all the mostly decent like horror movies? Like, this is going to be that. So I had to be careful, like in terms of of keeping it to like a meaningful list and not just like Dave's favorite, you know, movies that he wants to watch What's again. What's the weirdest one that you've uh, picked so far? Uh, if you were to just skim through it. I mean. Yeah. Let's see what the weirdest, like most, uh, you know, honestly, and it's not going to be that the movie is so weird, but I think like why, well, okay. There's two actually. So uh, the house that dripped blood, which I'm may a big not. Fan of, that was the first hammer or not hammer amicus horror anthology i ever saw <laughs> yeah and that one because of the 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 frame story um i thought was really cool in terms of uh 
it it gives you what you want right and so like that really is the act of mediation um what you what you're seeing is so based on your own projections you know um i thought that that was really and then to show it through this anthology series where each of these people have really extreme experiences that are you know different different aspects of it that that was what they had expected right like that it was giving them their own expectations it was reflecting their own mind back to them um and that idea of you know the house is great if you're the right person i just thought was like that was so uh indicative of just how strange these things can be and how one person can have a horrible experience another person can have a great experience um there the other one that was uh again not necessarily like the movie is weird but uh weird in terms of interacting with this is curse of the demon um by jacques turner uh one just because i love that film um and then two because again it shows um the idea of expectations it shows a great like and i love the scene where he the the protagonist is at that meeting of all these different experts and the one guy from india recognizes the song for uh that follows kind of the um the phenomena you know and he's like oh that's a tune for my in my country that's a tune to the devil you know and so like he recognizes it despite being from a totally different culture in that and um that again like speaks to sort of uh the experience that people have with this stuff like oh i recognize what that there's uh stephanie quick had actually related this uh, uh llama that she had dealt with for people uh, that don't know stephanie is very involved in the paranormal community and a listener of this show so i yeah, stephanie she's a, she's a big fan and she actually uh had had recommended your show to me and so um but she had she had uh mentioned the um there she was a tibetan llama that she had been talking to or heard about who um had had experience with anomalous lights in tibet and it wasn't until they got over to the u.s that they had called it a ufo and it was because in it you know it wasn't anything other than they they had seen something that in their culture was was one thing right and whether or not it even had a name and when they came over here that thing was a ufo and so that that remediation of that kind of thing, I think, you know, Curse of the Demon deals a lot with that. Like, and again, with projections and expectations, you know, you have the the scientist who doesn't believe in magic and doesn't believe it's real. And then you have, uh, you know, the Carswell, who is uh, in some ways a, a character based on Crowley, who is, is, you know, knows what that ritual has effect and has has done that to do this curse so you know i think it plays again in in an interesting way because i think that we're all anybody who's interested in these kind of topics um you know obviously a lot of people are casual readers in that but a lot of people want to in some ways engage with the research you know and i think that understanding what that means and some of the biases that we bring to that is important and i think a lot of the you know some of the films that we've chosen have to do with that have to do with these biases and and what is you know what is what happens to the the skeptical researcher when they're faced with something that's actually anomalous or weird 
you know. Um, it's something that comes up a lot in a, I don't know if you're familiar with, but M.R. James, the ghost stories of M.R. James, yeah. which oh, in yeah. Britain, it's tradition to, yeah. his ghost stories are like a tradition. They would air yeah. uh, adaptations of his ghost stories on uh, television every Christmas. But a lot of his stories deal with skeptical, very yeah. hard science oriented types coming into contact with something they can't explain. Yeah, antiquarians and that, like, and yeah. then suddenly they're faced with, like, oh, this is real. This isn't just in an old book. I love uh, The Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad. Whistle uh, and I Come to You is terrifying. <laughs> yeah, and that, 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 the version from the BBC is just like, I was not expect, because I love James, like, as a writer and I love his, his work. Um, I wasn't expecting the, the BBC version to be as, like, just like unnerving as it is. But it's really unnerving. This like, it's it's like one of the best, actually like, legitimately unnerving ghost story things I've seen. I was just like, wow, this is, and it's not done in a way where you know they're not using like the like you know in your face kind of kind of uh, filmmaking techniques. It's really subtle, but it's just so creepy. I love that. Like, yeah, it's it's fantastic. Those are those are great. Um, Algernon Blackwood, another British writer that. Um, also, um, M.R. James wasn't, but Algernon Blackwood was, you know, uh, knew about the Golden Dawn and interacted with the Golden Dawn and and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I don't know what movies have been made out of Algernon Blackwood, but um, yeah, I love James. You, you just you triggered my my James love there. And I couldn't. Well, fair fair enough. Um, we've been going for almost three hours, so I do want to let you go, but uh, I guess. So I think I'm going to have a lot of listeners that have either made it this far and are still asking this question or that they, they weren't able to stay with us because they just have a bias against this type of stuff. But I know I'm going to have listeners that are like, this just sounds like too woo-woo. And like I said, I'm a skeptic myself, but I still find the stories of people who claim to experience anomalous experiences to be interesting. And I think, I think, people should at least respect what they felt, even if they don't necessarily believe the experience was as anomalous as, as some would think. Right. But I guess what I'm asking you is to the people that say, okay, this is all just too woo woo for me. What would you say to them? Like, why should they maybe take an interest in say the course you're teaching? Uh, You know, I think if uh, one, it's a different way to enjoy horror. It's a different way to enjoy the art. Um, we will be going into people who've actually experienced stuff. If people, if people do enjoy horror films um, and they watch like The Color Out of Space, Richard Stanley is a is a practitioner, um, and uh, you know Amanda, who will hopefully have um, joining us and talking, um, will talk about the experience of being on set shooting a film, which is as uh, well done as Color Out of Space and interacting with this phenomena um, in the making of it. And so I think that one of the things that, um, you know, I think that any skeptic has to has to deal with is that Gary Nolan is a Stanford, um, you know, scientist who has invented incredible uh, ways of, of doing biochemistry based on his experiences. Right. So you can say like, it's all woo, but, um, he had an experience and it led him to invent something that has changed the world and affected the world. 
Um, you can say it's woo, but again, Toby Hooper was existing in woo when he made Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is in MoMA, right? It's in the Museum of Modern Art as one of the the best films of the 20th century. So, you know, and and other people didn't have that, right? You know, I mean, like James Randi doesn't have uh, a movie in that. You know, I mean, he's he's not at that level. So when you go to the higher levels of culture, you're going to find that quite often the things that reach the pinnacle of human expression have some element of this in them and have some element of the person who who creates them or the people who create them have had an experience that falls outside of it. And again, if you can drop the belief or not believe this is real, this is not real and just treat it as people having these experiences and then learning ways to express them. And then that leads us forward into new, new territory. Um, are there, are, so I'm curious, are there people that have come at it from my perspective or like, I, I don't know if you've ever heard Whitley Strieber say uh, that like, are, are there people that like me may be very skeptical of the experiences themselves in the sense of like, I may not believe all these experiences are, explained by something supernatural but i still think the experiences are interesting and yeah. that we shouldn't like dismiss whitley streber and just say oh yeah. he's you know a kook like i i still feel like you should even if you are skeptical of you know a supernatural explanation you can still respect the human being and what they feel they have experienced well one like on the supernatural thing so supernatural is actually a term um that it comes from the catholic church and it comes from a theological point of uh, God can do things outside of nature. And so a miracle is supernatural because it comes from God. And so it can break the rules of the natural order. Um, paranormal was used um, and invented to re not replace the supernatural, but explain things that weren't supernatural, that were normal, that but they were beside normality in the sense that they were um, different than sort of the the dominant worldview or the orthodox worldview. Um, so the kind of stuff that we're talking about isn't supernatural, right? Like this isn't something outside of the natural order. Um, it would be a different a different experience of the natural order, um, and possibly a different. Uh, angle on the natural order but it's not well, that, that's what paranormal if you were to break yeah. down the 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 root yeah terms right like para means alongside so alongside right. the normal sort of yeah. yeah it's sort of like the term paranoia implies a consciousness that that is alongside normal yeah, consciousness. Alongside yeah. yeah so um so yeah so with with that you know like um the things don't get any less weird um when you give them normal explanations right so let's say that everybody that's who actually saw, a really good way of putting it you know like let's say let's say it's all drones right like for now right for our, our current time period everybody who sees a ufo it's a drone okay so that means that there's cults out there that literally have social influence that are having transcendent experience with drones that's weird um, there's people that you say cults. Uh, do you mean like the Raelians and the prophet of Yahweh and all that stuff? Yeah. 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 So let's say it's drones, right? Like then suddenly you have the social group that's being run by people having transcendent experience from seeing a drone. That's odd, you know, and totally possible, right? Totally possible, but still odd. Cause then, and, and that's what we're looking at. We're looking at the, the tail end of an experience. We're looking at what comes out of that experience and the, the trigger for that experience can be anything, but once it hits our mind, 
it becomes something else. It hits these narratives and it becomes something else. So, you know, again, like I don't, you know, I don't care if it's, if it's actually something paranormal or weird. What's weird to me is that humans act <laughs> in very interesting ways when they're triggered by something that's sort of outside of their, their daily narrative, you know? Um, and so, you know, that, that is interesting, I think. And that's, that's hopefully kind of the perspective that we'll be, that we'll be bringing to that, you know? And, and again, that's why we're talking a lot about media because the media really frames how people have experiences. You know, I mean, you can step out and see a grain of sand and be William Blake and suddenly you see infinity right? Because you, you have that poetic mindset. Um, and he also was doing, um, a lot of interesting practices that don't really get talked about in English class, but, um, he was very heavy into sexual, uh, mysticism and magic and was very interested in mesmerism and magnetism and, and that kind of thing. And had a very interesting personal practices that he did to gain altered states of consciousness. But, um, you know, again, grain of sand, one person picks it up, it's silicate, don't care, you know, big deal, moving uh, on. I was going to say, it's like when a religious person, you know, like some people may describe like, um, you know, in past civilizations, maybe, like they, they may have described the the stars in the sky as almost being like, um, you know, chariots uh, yeah. uh, of the angels or whatever. And people yeah. laugh and mock that. But I mean, it's really not that different from when Neil deGrasse Tyson is talking about the vastness of the universe or even Carl right. Sagan. And right. they're describing the vastness of the universe and the awe that it causes them. Right. And in a way, the religious person and the scientific person there are describing the same thing just with different language. Yeah, there's actually there's a an article that I just saw uh, yesterday, which was um, that atheists are oftentimes more religious than Christians in terms of their belief and in terms of how they hold their belief and how they interact, they enact their belief in life, you know? Um, and you know, uh, Jeffrey Kripal at Rice has a really interesting idea. Again, I said before, he said, drop your beliefs, you know, but he says that you've got to die two deaths. One, you have to die a death to your beliefs that you held, um, that were given to you. And then you also got to die to the beliefs that you picked up to make up for the, you know, giving up the original beliefs, right? So if you grow up in some sort of fundamentalist home and you reject that and you become something else, right? It's Satanist or atheist or something, some sort of reactionary thing, you got to kill that too. And then once you're on that third one is when you can start your journey into exploring what's actually real because you don't, you're not believing things anymore. You're actually looking, you know, and so that's kind of uh, what we hope to get out of this course. And it is a course too. So it may not be right for everybody. You know, not everybody wants to take that journey and not everybody wants to to ask questions in this way, you know? Um, so it, you know, it may be a, it may be a very niche, niche group of people that that want to take the journey. Um, but, and it'll be, you know, for the course itself, um, very open in terms of conversation and questions. I know the some of the other ones that Diana has run um, based on her research, um, a lot of dialogue and a lot of uh, interaction, you know, so this isn't just us talking at people and being like, this is the answer. This is us exploring something together and sort of going on that journey and, and learning from each other. Because, you know, I mean, I'm excited to talk to you because you have such an amazing knowledge of horror films and that and and that's awesome 
because I don't necessarily have that. You know, I have my own experience with, with horror and, and, you know, I'm not like totally just um, coming at it blind, but I don't have the level of, of understanding for certain films that you have. You know, I mean, that was, like I said, I love that, that one you did with uh, horror because it was, it was incredible to hear that and to hear that level of discussion about horror was fantastic. And Giallo's, you know, I mean, just the, to hear that, that level of discussion about movies, which, you know, are known as like, you know, glove with knife kind of things. I mean that, but then to understand that there's more to it than that. Um, so everybody brings something to it, you know? So if people want to have this conversation and want to join in this conversation in a sort of guided way, um, those would be the people that should should think about looking at the course, you know. Um, and we will. Have... It sounds like it's a uh, a course for the curious minded. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it's and again, like we're not um, we're not pushing any propaganda. Like I don't want people to suddenly like, ooh, I believe in UFOs and I believe in ghosts and all the rest of this stuff. Like that's totally not my goal. You know, I want people to look at life and to look at themselves and to look at at their experiences and have a richer experience and have a, a more uh, fruitful experience with this stuff, which I think in the, you know, whether on either side, you know, whether you're a total UFO person and UFOs are real and they're aliens and, you know, whatever, or you're a total skeptic, I think both of the extremes lose the richness of life and humanity, you know, because at the end of the day, we're stuck in our heads and we're doing what we do. And, you know, it's all about um, where you're going with that, you know, and I think that, you know, if we, if we explore these kind of things, we have an opportunity to expand that in some ways, you know, um, one thing I would like to kind of quote Whitley on directly, which I think is just a great um, sort of encapsulation of what we're trying to do. Um, and this is from communion. He says, um, the enigmatic presence of the human mind winks back from the dark. And that's his description of the visitors. The enigmatic presence of the human mind winks back from the dark. And that that is, to me, what we're talking about. You know, we're talking about... What do you about think a, he means by that? The, we never see outside of our minds, right? Like, nothing we see is outside of us. Every single thing we see is filtered through our brains. It's filtered through our the way our brains have have patterned. You know, it's it's the way the neurons are. are every single thing we we see is it's here. It's in us. You know, it's in our heads. And um, so our experiences of anything that's you know anomalous or paranormal or any of this, it's in our heads. Um, and so we have to face that first before we talk about anything outside of that, you know? And so for him having such a visceral and strange and, um, impactful and, and just very extreme experience, um, even in terms of his career in that, uh, you know, he's facing himself and he's learning about himself and his place in the world. And I think that that at, at its best, that's what these things can really do is they teach us about ourselves, you know, but I think that with horror, we can go we can go past that a, a little bit into stuff like what Fisher is talking about with the weird um, or Eugene Thacker, um, who's written a lot of, of stuff on this. But into in, the in, in the dust of this this earth, right? I yeah, in the dust spoken. of this earth, and um, he's done a lot of uh, he has a horror trilogy of philosophy of horror, um, which is really good. But looking at, I, uh, I used to work for um, I briefly 
uh, as an intern worked for Zero Books, who released oh, a lot yeah. of those. Yeah, yeah, released yeah. a lot of the Mark Fisher they books. Did. Yeah, they sure did. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, um, and and just the idea that like of of again talking to that other and talking to the the unhuman and the inhuman and the 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 things that we don't recognize as ourselves and having that exploration too i think is is an opportunity that that gets passed over when things are just black and white um skepticism not skepticism kind of stuff so hopefully this course will be you know just an opportunity to explore that um for me personally, it also is an opportunity just to talk about horror and just to enjoy horror movies and just to love to love uh, the horror genre um, in a way that uh, is relevant to, to something else, you know. So the course, again, is Your Waking Nightmare, exploring the UFO through the lens of horror and techno realism. Uh, and it's you and Diana Pasolka. Um, what's that? Uh, Pasolka. Yeah. Okay, I, I was worried that I was getting her name wrong uh, with guest Whitley Strieber. And mm -hmm. I guess it begins on March 8th and it's on every Wednesday until the 22nd, right? The last yeah. of uh, the 20, uh, 2023 and 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Anything else they should note? Uh, that's at morbidanatomy.org, right? Yeah, it's online. Um, go to Morbid Anatomy and it's on their, their course listings. Um just excited for people to explore this with us so yeah you know i mean if you enjoy horror um if you've been reading the news about government reports on ufos and the rest of it and are interested in and in maybe seeing something that's not crappy military gun camera footage you no, know oh my god we need more of that i mean i, I don't <laughs> want to what's what's the the big what was the big thing the past few years with tom to launch that Oh yeah, the TTSA, the To the Stars. Yeah, I, like I don't want to disparage, but I'm like, uh, this feels like it's trying to be a military contractor thing. But yeah, let's just yeah, let's 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 let, that's why this this will be an opportunity to refresh yourself at the uh, the fount of horror, you know, bathe it. Bathe Which in it's a completely different angle on on the whole <laughs> UFO thing and anomalous experiences, and I I think looking at it from the perspective that you and and people like Jeffrey Kripal are looking at it, I, I think is at least a more interesting perspective. Um, and I would say fruitful than the old worn out at this point, you know, uh, nuts and bolts, I think, perspective yeah. on UFOs. I, don't I mean, that's a, my personal biases, but. Yeah, I don't have a degree in physics and I will never get a patent on any kind of technology. <laughs> so I don't care. <laughs> I don't care what those are. Like, that's, that's fine. Um, but I am a human and I do have a mind. So, you know, and I think, well, m hopefully most of us do. So, you know, it's an opportunity to get a little bit more real with it and a little bit more direct to people's experience and not, um, you know, most of us are military contractors or think tank uh, physicists. So, you know, let's get a little bit more, more human about this. Well, thank you again, David Metcalf for coming on Parallax Views. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David Metcalf. And if you're interested in his course, Your Waking Nightmare, Understanding the UFO Through the Lens of Horror and Techno-Realism, then head on over to morbidanatomy.org for more information. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, 
That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like right. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.